I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot on a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holla ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, stacks. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million hours. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all of a million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beauty Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help was like this life. I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this I wish, I wish, that every time we do it it feels just like this I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this It feels just like this It feels I wish I had a time machine Wish I had a better rhyming speed Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing me the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock <laughs> Focused on myself You can't help me wish But I would rather wish the hell It's like, it's like I wish, I wish That every time we love it It feels just like this I wish, I wish That every time we do it Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I'm your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and today we are talking about an action-packed episode with a man who went on to do quite a few interviews that have him on the tips of the tongues of many leftists today. Uh, that's Representative uh, Ro Khanna, who obviously... Um, what is that noise that I'm hearing? What, what is that? What is that, like, hissing noise? Am I the only one who hears that? Okay, sorry. I don't... What? what? It's like a... What is that? Okay, I'm sorry. I don't... Oh, it's something weird with my connection. You know what? We're going to just kind of ignore it for a second. The mic game is too high. Okay, is that... I'm still... I still hear it even though if I turn the mic down... I think it's like some weird like connectivity issue because when I wiggle my cord, this is very boring, so I'm going to push through. Anyway, everyone's talking about him because obviously he's a representative um, uh, from California and the um, Silicon Valley uh, bank crash is all anybody's talking about. The bailout that we're not supposed to be calling a bailout, but that was just starting to percolate when we recorded, so we didn't get into that very much at all. Instead, uh, it seems that I'm perhaps the only person who has been able to ask a sitting Congress member directly and get an answer on what they think about Cy Herger's reporting on the, the U.S. being responsible for the Nord Stream pipeline. I asked him pointedly which kind of narrative he found to be more credible, Cy Herger's reporting or this new New York Times report from last week that a unnamed, unidentified pro-Ukrainian group with a small yacht managed to deliver the thousands of pounds of explosives into the Baltic and uh, commit this act of sabotage. 
Um, he disagreed with the idea of having an independent UN investigation, saying he didn't think it was appropriate for the UN to be investigating the U.S. military. And when I asked how the U.S. was supposed to be credibly able to investigate itself if it was the prime suspect, I didn't find the answer to be especially satisfactory. But again, you can judge for yourselves. Uh, we also talked about a number of other subjects, including whether or not Democrats are ultimately going to fail rail workers and the people who live in communities close to rail lines by not fighting for the full panoply of safety measures that would actually be targeted to preventing a disaster like the one in East Palestine again, and whether or not specifically they are going to push for sick days. It seems that the answer on that is no. And of course, you know, you can listen to the entire hour-long interview over at patreon.com slash Podcast. But... Let's get right into it. What did you guys think of the interview? Chris, you're up first. Hey, Bree, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. A lot better from last week. I was a little buzzed. So I, <laughs> That's funny I you say that because I'm about to make myself a hot toddy as I listen to you ask your questions. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, well, um, that kind of, yeah. Um, I forgot. I remember it was supposed to be like a fuck you award, and I know I wanted to say a giant fuck you to what's the guy name? Um, he's on Twitter, Brooklyn's greatest dad or finest dad or the the, yeah. the clear op that Bro- the Democrats Brooklyn. are running, trying to make Brooklyn. it seem like yeah, Brooklyn dad defiant. Yeah, Brooklyn bad defiant. Yeah, he's defiantly stupid. I'm like, there's just like this is just crazy to me. But, um, been blocked by him for a very long time. Oh, you're blocked. Oh, oh, I need to get blocked. I wonder what all I got to do is say is that Democrats suck. And then that's probably a hill. That'll give me a good block. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but nah, um, I actually wanted to talk about um, the uh, the uh, Silicon Valley bailout, or I guess it's not a bailout. And um, I've been trying to read up a little bit more on it. Cause obviously everything just dropped like this morning and stuff. And I'm just like, wait a minute. So it was like another bailout. So I've been re- seeing like, everyone's like kind of like POV and it sounds like, um, there were there was a I guess a good question or a, a fair question of the idea of uh, people who have uh, depositors. So like obviously the depositors didn't do nothing wrong. So should you make them whole? But the problem is what it just did. What they just did is pretty much really incentivize the fact that banks can no longer fail because apparently this um, from uh, I believe uh, they was talking on uh, rising today. They was what they were saying was that um, is that. Um, this bank in particular, like it wasn't as bad as like, you know, I guess like in 2008 or anything like that. It was for the for the most part. I mean, people would have been hurt and, you know, obviously it would have sucked, though. But like um, they probably would have gotten been able to get if, you know, um, the government didn't come out and come and bail them out, that they probably would at least been made hold on at least 80. It was I think it's 89 to 90 percent of their, you know, the money that they lost. So it's like now with this, you're kind of now set, you literally just set the president that like, OK, this is just cool. And is this is like the new excuse now that's going to be used to bail banks out again for when they fuck up is, oh, well, we got to make the debtor, you know, the uh, the, uh, the depositors whole, you know, that is they didn't do anything wrong. So is, this is kind of like the new linchpin where it's like people are just going to be officially cool with just bailing banks out as they make these risky gambles with our money and everything and then get made whole. Yeah, I mean, I I don't. Uh, I've seen that discourse as well. I'm not sure that I have any particular uh, insider um, expertise here. Uh, it seems to me that the argument uh, is that there, this isn't in fact a bailout because it's being paid for from a fund that is 
derived from credit fees, um, bank bank fees, and people are pointing out those bank fees disproportionately fall on the backs of less affluent people, overdraw fees, et cetera. So oh, yeah, the overdraft fees. Yeah. There's a million things that we've been arguing isn't really a tax, like student debt cancellation, and people <laughs> decide that that stuff is a tax because yeah. nothing means anything. So yeah. at the end of the day, I think, I mean, the aspect of the story that I have been following is kind of the hypocrisy of it all. I don't, look, I, I don't, I don't know how much, It's, my understanding is that there were any number of regulations that were lobbied against and which disappeared as a consequence of people who were very much part of the revolving door, like Barney Frank and some yeah. Democrats apparently who voted for this deregulation, but for wouldn't they wouldn't have ended up in this situation that would have required them to have either less risky investments or more securities or some, you know, have it more securitized or something. I don't really understand. To be mm-hmm. honest, I give myself permission not to follow the news on the weekend. So I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I have to figure it out sometime between now and tomorrow morning, but I don't know. So I'm sorry. I didn't talk to Ro about that and I don't know much about that. Oh, uh, no, it's okay. Um, I was just, just getting your POV because I'm like, I said, I'm learning more and more and like, um, from 2008, I was kind of in college, so like, I mean, I paid, I didn't pay attention, so I didn't really like truly understand the magnitude of everything that happened. So that's why I, I like following this just a little bit more. And it's like, yeah, kind of, I don't know, it just, it, it's the the screaming hypocrisy of it about like how when it just happened, like the government acted within 48 hours, but then it's like when it, like, when it came to things like yeah, like student debt or any other things, it's just like every, they always just act like their hands are tied, and it seems like it's like obviously a universal thing. Even though I have seen Republicans kind of like shitting on this a little bit more, but I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe it is like you know, it is uh, socialism for the rich, and then you know, straight up capitalism for us. We just got to figure the shit out. So I mean, yeah. So you know, here's the question: What's anybody going to do about it? Nothing. Nothing. I can answer that one for you. Nothing. Ain't nobody going to do nothing about it. And that's unfortunately the uh, the, uh, the position we in. So, yeah. That That's what feels so completely and totally, uh, it's like, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm just like in a mood coming off of a weekend or something. <laughs> but I just feel like I'm a little tired of like, I don't know. I just I like almost don't even have the energy to be outraged. Because we know there's. I mean, I don't know. I don't mean to say it like that. Like, we know there's going to be no consequences. There's no point in being upset. Obviously, there's a point in being upset. But it's like, are people going to do what? No, I mean, are you, you going to vote not- for Biden? Because it seems like you're going to vote for Biden. So, exactly. Well, I won't. But, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, <laughs> but even even a lot of people who are upset yeah, on the left are going to vote for Biden. And I think that's kind of like one of the hardest things to see is just like, even with your, your interview with Ro Khanna, like I saw the one on YouTube, I couldn't fully watch it because he is like the king of gaslighting and the king of just saying a bunch of shit. And then you really got to force him into like a, a certain position. Otherwise he gives you the uh, the politics pick. But even in that, it's like, I remember when you asked him about like, is it too, was it too early for you guys to throw your hats in for um, Joe, Joe Biden? And then he's sitting there saying, well, he's, was, he's more progressive than what I thought he was. But then it was like, wait, well, why wouldn't you just wait for another contender to actually get on the stage and start speaking about the stuff that you claim that you care about, like Medicare for all and stuff? And it was just like a just a bullshit answer. And it's just like, uh, it's just like, so this is the guy, this is, you know, this is the progressive guy. And I know he comes to everybody and, you know, he's willing to take the. I guess the heat from the left that's not just like completely like complicit in this dem- uh, the democratic like takeover and everything, but it's still kind of just like, damn, like if this is the best we got, then yeah, we fucked. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just I really want to give Jimmy Dore a lot of credit here because <laughs> all, all roads lead back to what's the vote. The, the tip of the spear is like getting people to realize that the best we've got is actively preventing Dude. more revolutionary action. Exactly. They're gatekeepers now. And that's kind of like, there's no way to kind of like call it if ends of us. It's just they just gatekeep for it. And they try to find a bajillion excuse. Like, how many of these fucking excuses are, uh, you don't get, you don't vote for perfect, you vote for such and such. Or like these fucking tired ass slogans that we see every week for why Democrats aren't able to do any fucking thing. Like, I just saw Biden just, uh, just did some more offshore, uh, offshore drilling mm-hmm. in Alaska. Come on, Biggest now. offshore drilling project. Yep. What happened to all the people who cared about climate? Now all of a sudden you don't give a shit about climate. What about mm-hmm. what's going on down at the fucking border? Oh, the opening family separation. No yep. Come on, man. It's just like you got to see it, and then you don't see the rubes defending it no more. So they just they're trying to be quiet about it. Yep. I mean, I saw a couple of people. You know, I saw Beto O'Rourke and um, Julian Castro mm-hmm. tweeting about it, and I thought to myself, Are they like coming back? Like, are they making? Are they doing this because they're like? Pissed off, especially Julian Castro. I think the Democratic Party really did him dirty in the primary in twenty. Yeah, they did. They 19, did. Like that wasn't my bot battle. <laughs> you know that wasn't that wasn't my cross to bear. But I just remember looking at him in the corner of my eye. You know, from the Bernie campaign, thing, mm, they are like doing him <laughs> dirty right now. Uh, when he and Cory Booker got sidelined because they had the audacity to point out that, um, you know, not all cylinders were firing with Joe Biden during one of the debates. Yeah, but um. Yeah. So I don't know if they're doing this because they feel salty and bitter. I don't know if they're doing this because they sincerely care. I don't know if they're doing this because they want to make a run uh, at the presidency again and think that this might be their lane of critique against Biden as two people from, you know, border affected um, state, border, border states. And, you know, Julian Castro in particular has been, you know, very vocal about immigration issues. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But it was interesting to see them kind of stick their heads up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And like nobody cares. I mean, I asked I asked Roe about this in the interview, specifically yeah. the Title Forty Two, because he started with that, um, you know, Biden is better than Trump stuff. And yeah. Look, it's that's a tricky place that's to be in because I'm not. I'm like I'm really. It's like pointless. Like I'm not really trying yeah. to argue, you know, on balance whether Biden and is also, better than that's Trump. Like a low bar. Like that. Yeah, that's like, not the point. But like yeah. the things that people point to as being particularly horrific about Donald Trump. If Biden is literally doing those things, exactly. do it, you know, contemplating family separation, doing the biggest uh, oil Alaska oil project mm-hmm. ever, mm-hmm. you know, starting a war with Russia and maybe China. <laughs> yeah, this is so crazy because you are a hundred percent right on like all the fears of what that we thought Donald Trump was. I ain't gonna lie, I, thought, I was the first one to say like, do I really want this dude having you know the codes to the nuclear, you know, yeah, to our, our nukes and stuff like mm-hmm. that? But it's like. Then we have this president right now who's actively literally pursuing a war with Russia right now. Like they they're, they're no longer they no longer can't even say that this isn't a proxy war no more. They can't. Mm-hmm. So now it's just like it's like all right. So they're trying to somehow convince us that further escalation with Russia is only better even though they have nuclear weapons. And there and there's clearly lines cuz they're like tiptoeing around it cuz there's clearly a line that can that can only we can only go so far before Russia actually finally like retaliates and feels threatened and stuff. So it's like you just constantly playing a stupid game of fucking chicken. And then it's like, yeah, that was something we thought that um, Donald Trump would do. And then it's like they just fully embrace the idea of just like war. I mean, I wouldn't even surprise. I think some of the rhetoric that's coming towards China now. It's like 
all right, like, I, I, is yeah. this are are these the stages of a fallen empire? Because I've kind of been reading up on that a lot, a lot. Like the I like of some of the greatest empires, how they start to fall and it starts to overexpansion, um, trying to like control everything, spreading out your resources, and then it's usually a war that don't go on your way, and then it just things just start to collapse. So I don't know. Let me tell you, I'm just really grateful to have been born in the year of our Lord, 1985. I've seen some amazing things in my lifetime. Okay. I know what a landline is. <laughs> I know what a landline is. Once. I use rotary phones because we had in Kenya, oh, it was yeah. you know a little bit behind. Mm-hmm. And we the phone itself wasn't a literal rotary phone, but you had to press the button and then wait for the rotary clicks to happen. Oh, my gosh. Before you press the next button or it would get confused. You know, I was there for the dawn of the internet and I didn't get my first cell phone until I was like a senior in high school and we didn't have smartphones till I graduated college and you know, I've traveled the world. I saw Kenya in the kind of post-colonial days of the 90s. You know, I've seen some things. I think I've gotten to witness a wonderful sweep of uh global history here. Okay. And, you know, I, I knew what it was like to be able to order a hamburger whenever you wanted and to drink water straight from the tap. And I don't know that kids born today are going to have those experiences. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, especially the drinking water out of the tap. I was a water hose kid. You know, used to be out in the summer all day. Oh, man, that water hose, that was nothing more thirst quenching than the, the uh, water from the hose. But, yeah, now shit's all lead and if not just fucking destroyed. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, all I, I'm just... Life is can be so short and brutish, and I, I just look. I, I just I met up with some of my friends just now, um, mm-hmm. from law school. One of my best girlfriends, and she was with her two small kids, and they're Canadian, so they're not going to have to worry about their kids going to go fight in the war. But I was like, oh, I'm so glad you little boys aren't going to have to go fight in the Great Chinese War. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Trudeau gets into some tomfoolery, so I can't say too yeah, much for sure. Dude, but I'm sorry, that's a whole. Yeah, he is. He is on some different kind of level. Like, I'm sorry. Like, anybody who was, like, hyping him up and all the shit he did, especially when it came to the uh, the work, uh, the truckers and things, I'm like, all right, man, y'all say y'all don't like this shit, but y'all sure enough cheering this shit on. Like, the idea that he was going into people's PayPals and shit like that to just, like, the, the actively try to stop people supporting the truck, like, that was, I mean, but where are the lines now? Where are the lines? Because it seems like there is no such thing. Like, we don't understand what journalists is or journalists do things now that we don't like. And all of a sudden, they're not real journalists. Journalists. Or, yeah, 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 we got to put quotation marks on it. Um, they try, Yeah, it's just like everything. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, yeah, where are the lines anymore? I don't, I don't see some them. Some of y'all. Some of y'all, I got to say. Like, I don't even, like, really characterize myself as a journalist. I, You know, I've never been that. Mm-hmm. I've always been a little uncomfortable with it, even when I was an editor at The Intercept, just because I feel like I didn't jump through whatever hoop, which is silly, obviously. Mm-hmm. But some of y'all need these, all, all the ways that y'all were defending Matt Taibbi, some of y'all come after me in the Patreon comments. If I use an opportunity to have access to a congressperson to ask <laughs> and get a number of responses on the record, a bunch of you start calling me a so-called journalist because you're like, well, why didn't you just argue with him? I was like, this is so funny. Last week, you guys were mad at me because I, I kept on one point with Matt Taibbi for the, most of the interview to try to get him to respond to this criticism. And with Ro Khanna, if I move off a point because he gives me a statement and I know that's what I'm going to get from him. And, you know, Matt Taibbi, I 
respect and agree with. And I want him to really understand where I'm coming from and perhaps change his mind. But kind of, I'm not trying to change his mind on anything. I'm just trying to get him on the record so people can use that information and press Congress. And you guys are like, well, you let him off the hook. And why didn't you argue with him for the rest of the episode about his answer? You, you took, you took his answers for granted. You're too credulous. I'm like, honey, I promise you, you don't know anything that I don't know. <laughs> you didn't feel any kind of way about his answer that I didn't feel, but we have an hour. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is what, this is what we're doing. And I don't appreciate some of you on the Patreon acting like I'm supposed to be, what do you want me to be an advocate or a journalist? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know about that, but it seemed like uh, Ro Connor starting to get cooked. I guess for for some of the he said the shit that he's saying as far as like him getting one of the rings. So I mean, like, yeah, Ro Connor's getting the heat now because I think we kind of can see it now. Like, you know, he's just a just a mouthpiece. He he he's better yeah. Pramila Jayapal. He he, I guess, somewhat better than uh, Pramila Jayapal. But ultimately, those are like the two same people. I mean, look, he thinks he's gonna be he's gonna run for president. Yeah, and I think he's going to run in 2028 because that was why he tried to make the argument that I think we have a better shot at uh, our more leftist uh, policies in 2028. I'm like, sir, like, is yeah. the country even going to be alive in 2028? Like, come, oh, come on, man, come on. Yeah. You truly believe that, and you truly can't believe that that this Democratic machine is somehow going to get better, and they're not going to try to line it up for something. Well, obviously, I don't know about Mayo Pete no more because I think he fucked his whole shit up. Unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's it for him. And this by the way, for those of you who haven't listened, I asked, I asked Rose specifically whether <laughs> he thought that Mayo Pete had ruined his presidential chances by cocking up this whole peace Palestine business. But they didn't have to listen for that. Yeah, they would let like someone like Pramila Jayapal or like leftists like that, that they know that they can control. Like the idea of someone like a Bernie coming in and um, that's dead. That's dead. They're never going to let that happen again. He promised too much. And now we got too much stuff to hang Joe Biden up on now because all the shit he said he was going to do and that he's not doing or can't do or finds himself uh, constrained by the Congress and constrained by his powers and ethics. So it's just like, all right, man, you know, it kind of is a wash, but I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I did have one question because I remember what I was going to ask you last week. It was about mm-hmm. Chris, uh, the whole Chris Rock thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually kind of like um, I liked your analysis on it as far as like it felt like um, Chris Rock was doing a lot of projection on the idea that he's not a victim. And then, you know, like Will Smith was just like the biggest giant bitch in the world and all that kind of stuff. And it sounded like mm-hmm. he was projecting that more so was just like, oh no, I'm just against, you know, selective outrage and everything. And mm-hmm. like, oh no, like Chris Rock used to hit back. Like I'm, I'm a huge Chris Rock fan. He's probably, even after this special, I'll say he's definitely still one of my favorite comedians, mm-hmm. but it's just like, he wasn't hitting like he used to, like mm-hmm. he used to, he used to be able to like kind of like really drive home a point. And then it, this one, it was like, I mean, outside of the Will Smith stuff, like I did thought like, I guess like the story with his, you know, obviously with his daughter and everything, but they, he still didn't drive that home. Like his, he didn't his, even know what he yeah. felt like do you, do you tell me mm-hmm. what, what was the punchline of that story? What was the right. point of it? The idea that she's rich, it, well, the idea that he he raised rich and spoiled kids mm-hmm. and did something intentionally as a dad so she can, I guess, be humbled. But in the humbleness, she still ended up being rich and successful because she's a whole chef in France that he paid for and his grandma get to see it. Right. So I feel to like, me, yeah, nothing. there's nothing there. Like, to yeah. me, the, the theme, the idea that, you um, know, I grew up with more of a struggle. My kids don't. There's dissonance there because I obviously don't want my kids to struggle, but I want them not to be privileged. Okay. That is a very relatable thing. 
That's a perfectly good setup. But then his story yeah, it didn't, just, didn't come, didn't come like there was no thesis there. Okay. Yeah. So his daughter does something wrong that he mm-hmm. agrees is wrong and she should get in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. And but he then asked- he kind of feels like his daughter shouldn't get in trouble for it because reason like reasons but no, no no she should get in trouble you know she shouldn't get into more trouble than the white kids but she should definitely still get in trouble for it so he makes sure she gets in trouble, for, trouble it, for it so but she also she's happy and great anyway i don't know like it became <laughs> it became i don't know like it, it just wasn't that great a story i'm sorry like i it felt like the whole special to me felt like some 60 year old 50 year old man yeah, <laughs> who just doesn't have good stories anymore because he's been living in the suburbs next to a dentist for the yeah. last 25 years. That was like his last hidden joke, I think, honestly, because even Tambourine before. Well, no, that was was that Tambourine? When the dentist did, joke? That was a yeah. great joke. Yeah, that was a great joke. I'm trying to, but I don't think that was Tambourine. I think that was Never Scared. When he did so, the, so the joke where people yeah. don't know is like, he's like, I'm rich. You know, I went and made, I'm successful and I'm a millionaire. <laughs> But I live, I'm a black man, I'm a millionaire, but I live next to, like, white dentists. Like, yeah, like I live next to I, completely average middle class. Like, <laughs> my version of success is just what white exactly. dentists get to enjoy. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So there's, like, all that. There's this class critique. Mm-hmm. There's, like, an, a racial critique that's, like, I would argue was punching in, like, the right direction. Mm-hmm. And in this special, he felt like he had obviously attained a level of privilege but, mm-hmm. but and, and enjoyed it and frankly didn't want to be, I think, sufficiently introspective to critique himself as someone who now is very much a member of that class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that unwillingness to actually make oneself the butt of the joke. Like I said on Rising, like he, he was telling all these jokes about how he's so much smaller than Will Smith. And obviously it wasn't a fair fight. Like, yeah. obviously, that's true. Yeah. But there was something about it where he, instead of like genuinely seeming like okay with that and laughing about being a small guy, he so seemed yeah. insecure and like bitter. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like I said, like um, Hart, Kevin Hart makes jokes about being small all the time, and like it's legit funny. Yeah, like he seems to like really be okay with it. He's like, whatever, I'm rich, I get yeah. to have a beautiful wife, and mm-hmm. like whatever, I'm small. Mm-hmm. Chris Rock seemed just like angry and like almost em- embarrassed that he stood mm-hmm. there and just took it yeah 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 because even that end like that i'm sorry that was like weak like honestly i was like really that was like really like come on like oh the reason why i didn't fight back even though i just explained that this guy's bigger than me we're not the same guy this guy played ali i played pookie all these kind of things and then it's just like you what you're saying is the reason why you didn't hit back was because you were in front of white people and i'm sorry yeah, that- the, oh oh boy i didn't get to that on rising and i have a some mixed feelings about talking about that in front of like a predominantly white audience but i'm sorry i like (laughs) i will never i will never be on chris rock's side as long as he is openly admitting that what he really felt was that was shameful about the whole thing was embarrassing black people in front of white people that is the most cuck shit i've ever heard (laughs) in my life like first of all your integrity and what you think is right and wrong should be based on your own moral code, exactly. not being embarrassed by Chris. fucking white people. Like, who? Uh, what kind of person are you that's walking around thinking, oh, I wonder what Massa's going to think. I wonder what the white people are going to think Chris. about me. Like, grow the fuck up. It's not 1850. Exactly. Okay? 
And then it was like, okay, let's say what didn't happen on the Oscar. So it would have been okay for you to fight on the BET Awards? Like, right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and I said this a year ago. Go back and listen to this call-in episode, the emergency call-in that I did the night of the slap with Eliami. Okay, I said exactly this. I said that the real thing that everyone was mad at is where it happened. Mm-hmm. That's it-, it. It was, and, it, and it's not just about white, black. Like the Oscars mm-hmm. is obviously an elite event, all of this stuff. But that's what it is. You're not supposed to get into the fight at Nobu. You're not supposed to get into the fight at, you know, at the opera. You're not supposed to get into the fight, you know, where, you know, that keep that stuff for the streets. Like, no. Exactly. If anything, Process. that's the best, most egalitarian thing about the whole thing. Is that it popped off where it popped off? Whatever. And like this idea that only poor miscreants are fighting. No, everybody's fighting. Everyone's abusing their wives. Everybody's an alcoholic at all class levels. The only difference is who has to do it in a public housing project where they can be overheard and the cops can be called and who gets to do it in the privacy of their mansion. And for once, there was a certain level of equality because it was happening with rich people out Mm -hmm. where everybody could see it. Mm Mm-hmm. And moreover, I, and I'm sorry, like I, a lot of the analysis in particular that I've seen, I'm sorry, from white leftists, they, don't, they know absolutely nothing about Chris Rock's long history of punching down at black women. He hates black women. He hates his own fucking ex-wife so much that he made a movie called I Think I Love My Wife. That movie is great. I don't care. What I'm sorry. No, it's I mean, a good I movie because, you know, I love me some Kerry Washington. Yeah, yeah, but it's a terrible movie when you really think of the premise and the whole crux of it. It's really bad. Like, it doesn't say marriage is good, but it's No, he hates his wife. He, he, that movie Good Hair he made was all, it was just like, (laughs) LOL, black women are gross and stupid and their hair is ugly. That was like the whole theme of that movie. I thought the theme was that his daughter asked, Daddy, why don't got good hair? And that's No, what that was going to be my next point. He's one of those men that can't even conceptualize, like, why feminism matters, except for that he has daughters. You know? So, like, he, he's been walking around his whole wife hate, life hating black women, but then, oops, I got some black girl children, so now I got to kind of reckon with this. <laughs> and so he makes a movie, but he isn't able, again, he is just not an especially introspective man. So the whole movie, it's, it's not talking about like why black women feel like there's so much social pressure to straighten our hair and to get yeah. these relaxers that are like ruining our scalp and causing us to get ovarian cysts. Yeah. And, you know, like we're programmed from the uh, small child. Why it's illegal to wear your hair in braids in the military and to use protective styles in the armed forces and why kids are getting sent home from school. You know, because of having natural hair and all this stuff, instead of interrogating this and why there's all this pressure on black women in society, he basically shows like up close as uh, up close shots of like women getting relaxers applied to their hair and like going like, gross. Why are you doing that to yourself? You're so stupid. And then there's all of these like slow motion shots. I haven't seen this movie, by the way, in like 15 years or whatever since it came out, but I saw it in the theaters and I remember every fucking detail of it because it was so stupid and bad. There, there were all of these slow motion shots. Like he would talk about natural hair and they would like cut to an image, you know, to illustrate the point. Mm-hmm. And then there would be like a sound effect and it would be like natural hair. And it would be like some like not especially attractive woman and with like a womp womp sound. Oh and then God. they would talk about like he was mentioned straight hair and he would have someone flipping their hair over their shoulder in like slow-mo with like chimes playing. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not making this up. 
I got like, yeah, it. Oh god! Every cue in this movie was reinforcing the idea that straight, swishy, flowy hair was the beauty standard that we should all embrace. That natural hair was gross and bad, but that somehow black women were pathological for pursuing the very beauty standard that the movie was reinforcing. <laughs> so he fucking sucks. Moreover, <laughs> moreover. Even if you believe that, well, you know, obviously, like, Will Smith shouldn't have hit him, right? Like, even yeah. if you believe that hitting someone in the Oscars is wrong, which obviously hitting someone anywhere is wrong. You're not supposed but, to hit people. Yeah. Okay, fine, obviously. Yes. The, the fact that he pretended the whole thing, he just wanted to drag Will Smith he, for, for his wife's relationship with August. Will Smith and Jada Pinkett, whatever you want to think about it, they have an open relationship. Yeah. And as much as it looked like Will Smith was really hurting <laughs> at that Red Table talk, as a consequence of them having this open relationship and his wife having a relationship with a much younger man who was his child's friend, they made that decision consensually as a couple. Yeah, okay? I, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to yeah, hit that because um, I do agree to some extent. Like what I think the slap came about was it. I think it was just a buildup of everyone making fun of him. So I do think there was some kind of credence to the idea of like the whole. Okay, thing. that's fine. That's no, hold on. That's fine. But a lot of people would make. Will Smith, and he didn't punch them. He didn't slap yeah. them. He slapped Chris Rock, and it's not because it's not because of that. I'm sorry. Chris okay. Rock is the only one who got up on the Oscars two years in a row, mm-hmm. the two separate Oscar hosting events in a row anyway, mm-hmm. and made jokes specifically about Will Smith's wife. A lot of people have made jokes about August and all of that, mm-hmm. but he's the one that two years in a row has made these jokes about Will Smith's wife. And the idea that, like, like his so the first year of critique he he was like Jada Smith expected everyone to boycott the Oscars because her husband didn't get an award. That's not yeah. really what happened. Mm-hmm. It was all of the Oscars so white stuff. Mm-hmm. Everyone was talking about you can agree or disagree with it, yeah. but it wasn't just some self interested oh my my husband deserves an award thing. It was mm-hmm. just it wasn't. Yeah. So yeah. one he's a bad narrator. He's an um, unreliable narrator because he is not accurately describing the events that actually happened. Yeah. And then two, he completely erased the alopecia making fun of her appearance look mm-hmm. from the entire narrative. Now, if you think your joke was appropriate and you stand by your joke, then Just stand by your joke. Say joke. he was soft, like he was too overly sensitive for me making a joke about the his joke. wife looking like G.I. Jane. And I should have been allowed to make that joke. I think that's fair. Stand mm-hmm. by your joke. But Chris Rock did not stand by his joke. Instead, he made it about something entirely different. About about yeah. the stuff with the the relationship yeah. with August and all of that stuff. But you know what? I you know what I think what it, what it comes like with Will. Like I don't think Will was it was ever mad at. I think I think what it was was it wasn't that she was having an affair because it seemed like they were very open and it was honest. open. He it was, was very open with honest. even Mendez back then, in the day, right? Right. But the thing with Will is Will Hoes didn't talk. Jaded. I'm sorry. I said uh, Will Will's girls, or I'll say his hoes, or you know the people he was sleeping. They don't talk, and August sure. did. And I think that was it was more the embarrassing part of his image kind of being destroyed. It wasn't necessarily that Jada had an affair. I don't think that's where his hurt came from. I think it was the idea that his public his image kind of got tarnished. His family <laughs> kind of getting it, and I think that is kind of where it was as far as Will's like. Emotion. Okay, but the thing Chris Rock didn't make a joke about that, yeah, and that's yeah. not why Chris. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. not like. Yeah. That's not what happened that night. So all of that stuff can be happening mm-hmm. in the background, but that's like, I'm sorry. Like, that's not what happened that night. And you're going to do a whole comedy special, mm-hmm. 
purporting to address what happened that night mm-hmm. while pretending like if you watch this comedy special, you wouldn't even know what Chris Rock said to make Will Smith come up on the stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, I don't even think he brought it up. He said he basically said Will Smith was mad at me because his wife was having an affair with a young man. Mm-hmm. You would have thought that the joke he told at the Oscars was about that. Yeah. Nah, and at but- a certain point, like Chris Rock is obviously being dishonest mm-hmm. because he 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 doesn't want to finish it. Because by the way, he apologized afterward for mm-hmm. making a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's hair. Mm-hmm. So which is it? Were you sorry about it? Or are you now just trying to save face? Because a year later, Will Smith won an Oscar. He's living his best life. He's got a beautiful family. And you're out here divorced as hell, fucking <laughs> white 25-year-olds. Because again, what? like all his all his jokes are about... Remember he told a bunch of jokes about dating young women? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, he did. And he had a bunch of racial jokes. I mean, he, he fucking hates black women. It just is what it is. And this let is me tell fun. you, gonna, God bless black that. women because no black woman should ever have sex with Chris Rock. Let, let them have him. <laughs> Well, his last little thing. I mean, she was. Uh, she was. Uh, yeah. She. Yeah. She was black. Well, okay. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. She should run. I don't know who she is. Oh, no, he's not. He not with her no more. He not with. Okay. Her. Yeah. She good for her. Run for the hills, sweetie. <laughs> run, girl. <laughs> get out of there. <laughs> all right. Well, we almost been forty minutes. My bad. My bad. I didn't mean to, get, to drag this out too long. My bad. No, it's okay. We've been having a good time. I appreciate you calling in, Chris. Yeah. No problem. You have a good night. You too. Keep the faith. All right, let's hop, hop, hoppity along here. Let's see what we got. Ryan, you look new. I haven't seen this face before. What's on your mind? Hi, Bree. Howdy, Ryan. What's on your mind tonight? Loud and clear. I am new, um, but I've been a fan of you for a long time, ever since um, the first podcast started. So thank you for providing so much great interviews and insight over the years. Um, you're absolutely wonderful. Um, thank you. I appreciate I you listening. To, I have to say um, I missed Rokama's interview because I have a young kid and a family and I'm on a budget and I just don't have any Patreon budget. <laughs> but um, I will say it's so SVB. Hey. Hey, you're, uh, Ryan, you're going in and out, and I missed I missed the last, like, 20 seconds or so. Ryan, I, are you still here, Ryan? I heard you say that you missed the Rokana interview because of Patreon, and then you kind of cut out. Ryan, can you hear us? Okay, Ryan, get back in the queue. Maybe if you move to a different place in the house or something and I'll call on you again when I see you back in the queue okay oh you guys can hear Ryan no you guys can't hear Ryan okay okay you're right I'm gonna have to move on but I'll come back to you if you get back in the queue okay so mix it up and, and see if we can do a little differently um Dylan what's on your mind hello can you hear me hey Dylan yeah, I can hear you. Awesome. What's on your mind tonight? Um, a few things. I wanna um, I want to talk about both of. I I missed the Rokana interview. Um, just a second. Let me adjust my headphones. You can hear me all right, right? Yeah, loud and clear. Okay, cool. Um, I missed the Rokana interview, but I do want to bring up um stuff from the other ones. I love the Sirota interview and the Taibi one. Um, sure. But 
if I can change the subject for just a minute, there's a story that came out um, today that I wanted to talk with, bring up today, because I'm trying to get Dr. Board out for it. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this um, girl on that I had followed for a while on Twitter that I found out she's a trans girl and I found out that she trigger warning, um, but she committed suicide. The, the, well, I think today or yesterday or something. And what, what it is, her name was Eden. Um, you can just look up Eden on Twitter and you can see a lot of different stuff. But what happened is that, um, trying to is there's there's a lot of information but what happened is she was from saudi arabia and she went came to the u.s to get um she came to the u.s to get refuge from her parents who were um obviously transphobic they were from saudi arabia very conservative family um and actually her father was like one of the heads of like the saudi central bank even like it's mm. not even like doxing him or anything to say that. Like they said something on, on Twitter even um, saying, but it's just so terrible. She basically, they, they human trafficked her to get her from the U.S. to Saudi Arabia and um, then forcefully detransitioned her. And then she sent a suicide note on Twitter basically saying this is it and explained everything that happened and it's just such a terrible story and i'm trying to get the word out for it mm. um you can look it up on twitter just eden um it's like the top thing um i think it's like justice for eden but um just if there's anybody that you know that would cover that i think i reached out to katie halper um just a little bit ago just to see if she, maybe she would cover it but um um, there's just a lot going on there. It's a pretty intense story. So I wanted to bring that up. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear about that. Yeah. I'm so sorry to hear about that. Thank you. Thank you for bringing it to my attention, Dylan. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, but yeah, sorry to, I mean, it's just things that happen. I mean, they're just the attacks on trans people lately are just terrible. And I mean, I mean, it's also an immigration issue too, because the fact that they can like traffic someone because I mean, the reason why, she was she they may get away with trafficking her to saudi arabia is because she was I believe an illegal immigrant and how, so how she was trapped. can you do you know any details about i mean mm-hmm. what what happened i mean she was in dc i'm reading how was she trafficked back to saudi arabia what there happened? is this there is this firm that was hired by her family it's this specific like dc it's it seemed like a very sketchy firm, um, but they like do investigations and like some investments or something. And um, they basically hired her to human traffic. It's called, it's called like SVP or SIVP, something like that. It's like different letters. And they got that. And then somebody with the Saudi embassy that, basically tried to befriend her, make her feel like she, they were on her side and then just kind of groomed her to be able to like force her to, to believe transitioning, detransitioning was okay. It's a really deep and terrible story. And it's just crazy because I actually, I didn't know her, but I had like 
it's like one of those Twitter follows that you follow for a while. You've interacted a few times and then you see they're in, everyone's talking about them because they just died. It's. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's just, yeah. It's... But yeah, if you know, if you know anyone you think may cover that, um, that would be great to reach out. Um, like I said, I reached out to Katie helper. I think she might, but, um, um, but yeah, if I can change, I can change subjects to something better if you would like. I mean, whatever even, you want to talk it's, about. Even though it's, it's extremely important. Um, um, but I feel like that's kind of more important than anything. Um, but um, if you want, I can talk about the uh, the Sirota and the Taibi episode as well. Whatever you want to talk about, whatever's on your mind today. Okay, great, great. Um, so I really appreciated the Taibi episode for sure. Um, um, like there's the whole entire talk about censorship and I'm completely on your side. I've, I remember I was looking at the Patreon comments when it came up and I, I watched it on Patreon and I was looking at the comments, like expecting everyone to be on your side. And I was seeing all these people. I'm like, what did she do? I mean, I didn't see anything you'd said that was even remotely I mean, you were being so friendly to him, and he's just—he was just very defense, defensive. Yeah, I mean, I thought so. I mean, I—I I feel genuinely friendly toward him. I, yeah. I genuinely have so much respect for him as a reporter and a writer. Um, so it's not put upon. I didn't—I didn't have to like steal myself to be polite. Yeah. The way that I do with some interviews, where I know it's going to be contentious. You know, I authentically am grateful for his work and am sensitive to how beleaguered he is and how much bad faith crap he has to put up with. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's I very authentically want to be supportive of him, yeah, but especially, it, you know, especially after now that we saw, the line of attack in the hearings, I, I almost feel more reaffirmed in my line of questioning because I do think that, you know, my, my concern is that he makes him look, it's not that you think that magically by framing your arguments a certain way, you're going to get rid of bad faith attacks, but you can have some control over how legitimate those attacks seem to third party observers who are watching the whole thing and making up their mind. And to not believe that you have any control over the way your message is being received is to basically say, well, why have a comms department? You know, Bernie should just go out there and say, I'm a socialist. Fuck you, Cuba rules. You know, like, you know, maybe you do believe that. But like if most people understand that there's a way that you have to kind of get people to where you need them to go. And there's a certain art to that. And that's why we have comms. And, you know, it seemed obvious to me that Matt was getting a little over his skis and some of the broader claims he was making on certain interview shows about the directionality of what he had found, which is, that's not even right, about the directionality of what exists in the kind of Twitter archives. And what he can make claims about is the directionality of what he personally has reviewed, right? Yeah. What Matt Taibbi has reviewed demonstrates a right-wing bias. But that is not the same thing as the right-wing bias actually existing overall. 
And moreover, if Matt Taibbi's main contention is that it's a problem for the the intelligence agencies to be wielding this um, influence, then if it were me, I would simply emphasize the fact that every American should be concerned that the intelligence agencies have so much power to control what the censorship censorship regime is at these these types of companies. Even if it is true that I'm also observing it mostly happening against the right, knowing that the liberal media is not as into that narrative, wanting them to cover the intelligence agency angle, I would think to myself, well, maybe maybe I should just stick to emphasizing the most important thing here, which is that the intelligence agencies have this influence. And we all know that it can lean one way or another way, depending on who's in office and what's going on in politics. And so the important thing is to make sure that the institution doesn't have that power, right? Isn't that the most important thing? Yeah. But look, I, I and I in no way think that Matt Taibbi wants to be a right winger or is trying to be a right winger or anything like that. But you can start to see why people are more and more able to make that argument when when he is in dialogue with conservatives, there is a leaning into not the intelligence agencies are going wild and need to be stopped angle, but the there is a pogrom against the right angle. Mm-hmm. And it's fine. If that's true in your experience of what you've seen, you can talk about that. But the consequence of emphasizing that aspect of your reporting as opposed to the intelligence agencies needs to be constrained aspect of your reporting is that you're going to get a bunch of people making specious bad faith attacks at you at a hearing like this. And your defenses are going to be relatively limited. Now I will say, I thought it was really great that he gave that statement about trying to like highlight some of the attacks on the left that he has observed, but it's a little too little too late. Like it, it felt like, I don't know, maybe that was because we did our interview. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. But it feels like that's exactly the kind of emphasis I would have liked to have seen him been making the entire time. And I think it would have been helpful to insulate himself against these kinds of attacks. Because while he points to the fact that in the first Twitter file stream, he alludes to the fact that there have been requests made by Donald Trump. And he said in our interview that he had a source outside of the Twitter files that told him about Donald Trump making requests to pull down tweets. He did not pursue that reporting and report it out. He didn't. He alluded to it. He, he mentioned it. And he says, well, I mentioned it. Okay. But if you just mention that, but you go into in-depth reporting on the other stuff, of course, people are going to say that you have more of an interest in covering attacks on the right than attacks on the left. And you're going to yeah. have to manage that. Like, you're just going to, you're going to have to respond to that criticism if you, if you frame the issues in that way. And that just is what it is. Yeah. See, my, what I think is happening with Matt is that he's being, he doesn't care. And I think this is what you were trying to get to. Um, tell me if I'm wrong, but that he doesn't really, he's not really looking at the narrative part. He's just thinking, well, I get the facts out there. They'll listen and everything. And he doesn't understand that all of this is going to be taken in political context. So the little bit that he's saying that's like saying, yeah, it's all I've seen is to, is that it's to the right. And then saying that however many times, and then just now saying, oh yeah, and it's the left too. It's, that's gonna, that's all people are going to hear whether he likes it or not. And he doesn't, I guess he's, 
like not even just not thinking about that and it just sucks that you try to point that out to him and he takes out his criticism when that's just true yeah if anything I, like i'm really just i'm just trying <laughs> like i'm literally just trying to help like, i know I, I don't know and and i i i want to because I'm, I'm seeing it like i this is this is the other thing like we have only done positive defensive radars and segments of matt taibbi on the show on on rising right like exclusively mm-hmm. i did one radar where I brought up the point that I brought up to him in this, in in our interview. And I first did like a solid five to seven minutes of Matt Taibbi is so great. Right. At the beginning of the radar, Matt Taibbi is so great. He's getting all these bad faith attacks and his reporting is so important. And the substance of the Twitter files is important. I did that for like five minutes in a 15 minute radar. And then I moved on to, but here's my one narrow concern. But other than that, it's been a hundred percent positive about the Twitter files on rising. So for that to be the case, and like at one point in the interview, Matt was like, well, that sounds like you are impugning the content of the Twitter files. And it's like, uh, name one time I said that anything that has come out in the Twitter files wasn't important and worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Name one thing, one time I've ever said that a single thing you haven't reported on wasn't important and worthwhile. You can't. And so it just does, it's it's like a little exhausting <laughs> Like, it just feels like there's nothing you can do to make people believe that there's ever a such thing as a criticism that's not coming from a place of wanting to tear you down. And I don't, like, I just don't know what to do about that. And sometimes, look, sometimes it just takes time for people to, like, sit with an argument for a while and marinate on it. And that's fine, too. Like, I'm, I'm often very defensive when someone tries to tell me something about myself. And then, like, a day or two later, I'm like, okay, honey, you were right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're human. I, and I get that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I just wanted to say that you were right. Anyone that says that you were wrong, you were, it was completely, I mean, most of the left, everyone left of Matt is asking the same questions you are. He just is not able to handle criticism right now, understandably, but still. Yeah, he's, he's, he's under the microscope and he's getting so much bad faith. Like, like I get why he just doesn't, if he doesn't have like room emotionally, cognitively to deal with this stuff like i i get that and yeah. i certainly have hold absolutely zero grudges or anything toward him and i look forward to new twitter files drops especially given that now it seems like he has a little bit more support in the way of this team that he's hired including aaron mate yeah yeah for sure for sure especially yet yeah, with aaron um being included but yeah um that's all i really want to bring up i mean the sirota episode was good and i'll get to the the connor row connor one soon but um very interested to see what he has to say about condemning socialism yeah well yeah. don't get your hopes up my friend <laughs> oh no i'm sure i'm sure it's going to be terrible but, uh, just, yeah i trust <laughs> yeah all right but all right well nice thanks for calling in dylan yeah it's been good talking to you keep the faith bye bye eric eric smith how goes it it goes well it goes well. I'm a little exhausted. Had some overnight mm. work for the past week, so yeah. Mm. What yeah. kind of? Do I know what kind of work you do? Have you shared um, that with us? You don't have to. Yeah, I I work on television and films. I'm an electric, mm. so I do all the lighting. Oh, cool! 
Yeah, I work in that area. So I'm working right now. I'm working on the new one of the Walking Dead spinoffs. Ooh. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know I like zombie stuff and I tried to wa- watch The Walking Dead because also I like Stephen Yun and um, that black lady. Uh, deny. Deny. Yes. Yeah. But I got it. I'm not like, I don't know. I'm not like that squeamish or scaredy pants. <laughs> but I watched like 10 minutes of the first episode of The Walking Dead and that little girl who gets like gunned down in the gas station, the zombie uh. little girl. And I was like, you know what? This isn't sitting right with my spirit, and I turned it off. <laughs> not, not, not today. Not today. And I just haven't come back to it. I don't know why. Watch The Last of Us. I mean, I, I don't watch The Last I mean, I, don't okay. spoil. I haven't seen the most recent episodes. Okay, I'm okay, saving okay. that. But, um, yeah, I definitely watch The Last of Us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's fun work. I really do enjoy it. I'm, like, I work as a third electric. I'm trying to work my way up to become what we call a gaffer, which mm. is the head of the electric department and then eventually, you know, a director of photography. That's like the pathway I see for myself. Cool. 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 Yeah, cool. So Good luck. All right. Yeah, I'm sorry you. you're tired, but that's, it sounds like you're on a very cool path. Uh-huh. So um, real quick, the, I really wanted to hit on the real Connor conversation just for the simple fact that every time he comes on, it just comes clear and clear. Cause I know some people will talk about how he gaslights us. I think it goes even farther than that. I think he's gaslighting himself. Mm-hmm. I think all of them have gaslit themselves, gaslit themselves, I should say, to the point where they truly believe that what they're what they're doing is the right path. When it's clearly, I believe, it's moving us further and further from any type of leftist policy. And I, when he talks and he speaks about what he's doing, is so contradictory to um, how things happen, how things change. Like, I truly believe, like, they talk about, like, I see, um, like, you know, Jamal Bone, Bowman and um, Ro Khan and the other people who make up the, uh, the Progressive uh, Caucus. And they, one, I think, one, they just won't admit themselves that they like the uh, proximity to power. Mm. That's really what it is, the proximity to power. And they believe that if they have the proximity to power and they have the air of the people in power, maybe they can make some small changes. But in, in essence, what I believe what Biden did, which was smart on his his part, when he brought Rokana, brought Pramila Jayapal into his organization, was it's it's a photo op. Mm-hmm. Look, these progressives, they're with me. So now all of you got to be with me because I got these progressives, and they and then they carry water for him and they bolster him. And that's my one of my main issues is because, like, it's one thing if Ro Khanna and, you know, people like the J- Jamal Bowman would come out and say, you know what, I really, really don't like Trump. I don't care for Bi- Biden. I'll vote for him. I really don't like Trump. And then just vote for Biden and then just keep their mouths shut, mm-hmm. with, you know, during the Biden presidency because just like, eh. But they go an extra mile and they say, like, I remember that one. I was so I don't know why I still get depressed, um, get disappointed in Jamal Bone because we know what he is. When he was having that one uh, 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 little debate on the the steps with that other oh, person, the, with that the the black guy from Florida. Ooh, honey, <laughs> yes, I didn't say it, you said it, but oh. I'm not exactly vocally disagreeing. But yes, mm-hmm, I know the one. And just the way you got to, like, the way, first of all, these two black men over here debating about some of these coffin, these geriatric coffin dodgers. And it's like, what are y'all doing? 
None of them are going to do anything. And it's just made me so upset that I had to like, I, I can't, I can't listen to this. It's, it's yeah. so bad. And I was like, I'm looking at them like, what is y'all point? Y'all point literally is nothing. Yeah, like y'all never going to push anything. To, it's like, do y'all understand that if to me, when you decide to be a progressive, when you decide to be beyond simply a Democrat or you've decided to be a leftist, I believe you decide to play this game of life on hard. Mm-hmm. You decide to take a hard path. And when they talk and they go into these interviews, it sounds like they just hope, they hope that, you know, Medicare for all will one day just fall on our lap. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hear from when uh, Ro Connor speaks. It's going to be 2028. No, it's not going to be in 2028 because what's going to happen is if Biden wins again, that's going to be four more years. He's going to pick Kamala as his VP again because he don't want that heat because, you know, they're going to say you got to pick him because he's a black woman and, you know, got to keep the black vote. And if you get rid of her, black people ain't going to be happy, which I don't necessarily think that will happen. Well, I think if you replace her with any old black woman, that there's not a single bit of constituency that would that would stand for Kamala specifically over just accepting mm-hmm. any old black person. Yeah. Like, so, I think if he picks any black person in the world, then the whole k just disappears and rallies behind the new person. Probably. And then what's going to happen is going to be someone very similar to uh, Kamala's uh, politics. So what's going to mm-hmm. happen after that is that's going to be the person who's going to run in 2028. And that's going to be the person who's probably going to win in a 2028 democracy. And we just keep doing mm-hmm. the same circle over and over again. Like, I was listening to... um. Uh, the leftist mafia uh, 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 on the YouTube, mm-hmm. and it was the same thing because I was actually shocked at how um, not really interested they were into Marianne Williamson's running. Mm-hmm. They were nobody. Interested. Nobody is. And I mean, I like was, I'm sorry, like the left. Like I think it feels like the it feels like the edgiest thing that the left can do right now is be against Marianne Williamson. That's the no true Scotman of the left right now is to proclaim as loudly as possible how disinterested you are in Marianne Williamson's one, which is fine. But then to me, the interesting question is what's what political benefit do you get out of the democratic primary? Are you just seeding the idea that there's any political value to be gotten out of that political moment whatsoever? And one of the things that they kept making up was the fact that, you know, um, Marianne Williamson doesn't have a movement behind her. Marianne Wiz- well, Williamson. <laughs> and I'm like, she well, won't Bernie because Sanders, of you. <laughs> Bernie Sanders didn't have a moon- movement around him in 2016 because I know I didn't know who the hell right. that was in 2016, but he made one. Right. What what part of what's so painful for me to observe with the Marianne stuff? Like, it's not that I don't, I frankly agree with all the criticisms of Marianne, which, by the way, many of which could be criticisms of Bernie in terms of some foreign policy points. Bernie just said, I co-sign everything Biden's done with Ukraine. So, mm-hmm. like, bring that heat, at least bring it evenly. You know, I that's do, all I'm saying. I do not like how it seems, it, it's very, I don't care, listen, I understand, you know, Bernie Sanders and the whole consistency thing, he's been doing this for years, but I do find, I do take a strong issue that it only seems that everyone else but bernie sanders specifically women seem to get these criticisms that bernie sanders should also get but they don't get but he doesn't get i I think that's true too so like look in in a general election i think that it's perfectly legitimate to ask yourself the question whether or not you know you want to vote for marianne i think it's perfectly legitimate to ask whether at any point you want to give her money or your time i think all of that is legitimate i've never once pushed back against any of that but also, if you're kind of performatively saying that you're not going to vote for Marianne in a primary, 
then what you're saying is you're going to vote for Biden or you're not going to vote at all, which mm. is fine. Those are all fine choices, but none of them are especially radical, I got to say. <laughs> and another thing that, that gets me is that we have, we have seen this because now we see what's going on right now in the news with the Willow Project that seems mm-hmm. like it just got confirmed with the immigration stuff that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And it seems because we see how this runs. But what's going to happen is Biden's going to win the primary. Then in general, most likely Biden's going to win the primary. Who knows? You know, I'm not Nostradamus. Mm-hmm. And most likely what's going to happen is they always court right-wing voters. Mm-hmm. Going to try to, that's what he's doing the whole thing with the immigration policy. He's going to try to court right-wing uh, voters. And my thing, what I keep telling people is that, I know sometimes I like to call myself an accelerationist, but mm-hmm. my thing is that I like to say that what I'm doing is I'm trying to stop the acceleration because I see what's going to happen if you keep voting for the same lesser, because again, voting for the lesser of two evils is still evil. And at mm-hmm. the end of the day, what the Republican Party does very well is I think a lot of people, because there was just this, a poll came out about a bunch of, like in Florida and I saw this on the leftist uh, mafia's podcast mm-hmm. and you saw how when it came to all of these, what we would consider left policies, the Florida voters was on our side, mm-hmm. even, even banning CRT, at least on a college level, mm-hmm. it was like 61. Now, I'm not sure. I didn't get into details of this poll, so I'm not sure, you know, how many people they polled, but just that little snippet, but they still voted for Ron DeSantis. And mm-hmm. I truly, when you really talk to like, you know, not maybe like true conservative people, like really on the right, is you realize just it's not that they like the Republican Party is that they either they hate the Democratic Party or they just find them weak and feckless. Mm-hmm. And even though they, they'll some of them like they, and they look at the Repo- Republican Party and they may know that, you know, they're not good either, but they they bring a presence of strength. Mm-hmm. And, and I like a, the gaslighting idea that they're going to do something. And they are doing something. They're pushing the party to the right. Mm-hmm. Like they're pushing the party to the right. And me personally, I I think it's a net positive when someone pushes the party to the left, even if they're not pushing the party to the left and all the things I would like them to be pushing the party to the left on me. I think on balance, it's a good thing to have a candidate in the race. That's talking about Julian Assange, who's criticizing the, uh, Silicon Valley bailout who supports Medicare for all. And again, you guys have got to stop lying. Like mm-hmm. I understand that Marianne Williamson said whatever she said about Mar- Medicare for all back in the day. If you want to make the argument that her having it in her platform now shouldn't be trusted because she previously didn't support Medicare for all, make that argument, but you cannot lie the way that some of you have been lying on Patreon talking about Marianne Williamson doesn't support Medicare for all. It's on our platform. Okay. So you can say, I don't believe it the way that I don't believe it when Joe Biden says, I'm going to protect social security. Make that argument. That's a perfectly legitimate argument, but don't just lie. Like it's so annoying. And that's why I don't read Patreon comments anymore. <laughs> and I think one of the things I was kind of telling, cause I remember back when they thought, what was what's Dick Cheney's um, daughter's name again? Liz. Liz Cheney. And they were showing polls. Like if she ran for president as an independent and it was like Biden and Trump, mm-hmm. if you look at those polls, it looked like she took votes away from Biden. Mm-hmm. Like it I, came to the point I, I believe that. Yeah, I would say, like give it a couple of more elections. Romney's going to be a Democrat. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. What's the point? And half of these people who are out here talking about I'm so radical are going to vote for him too. Yes, 
to save the world from Donald Trump. That's that's what I'm going to say because, and that's what I tell people all the time. As long as, and I tell people this all the time, the Democratic Party, I truly believe that the Democratic Party, if they really wanted to, I think they could wipe out the Republican Party, like in this winning. But like, I truly believe that the corporate Democrats want the Republican Party around because they need the boogeyman. Because as long as they have the boogeyman, they can point like, well, you can't, you got to vote for us because, you know, crazy Ron DeSantis over there is going to ban every book in the state. Yeah. They're always going to use that. So as long as they have that gun to your head and it's not going to stop until you decide to say, yo, I'm not doing it anymore. But um, yeah, that's like one of the things I really wanted to discuss. I also wanted to have, I have to talk about it because, you know, I'm a movie guy. So I know you were talking about the Oscars. I just wanted mm-hmm. to get your thoughts on it. What did you think? Um, so I watched the Oscars at an Oscar watch party with some people from the Bernie campaign, which is very delightful. And my feeling was that I think Tar should have won something. Mm. I very much enjoyed everywhere, every everything everywhere all at once. I am an enormous uh, Michelle Yeoh stan, including but not uh, exclusively because of Star Trek. I um, thought that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was doing a lot of extremely annoying Oscar interviews, pre-Oscar interviews. I like Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, I like Jamie Lee Curtis as much as the next person. True lies, hashtag, great movie. But I... Both of her parents are literally Hollywood royalty, and she's been running around doing this weird media campaign about how I've always been left out. I've never been considered because, bitch, like, I'm sorry. I understand the color, bitch. Because, woman, (laughs) you do horror movies. You don't get Oscars because you don't act. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying you can have good acting in a horror movie, but, like, she's not in, like, Hereditary. She's in Halloween. And the reason she's in Halloween is because her parents were Hollywood royalty, and they just got to get their 17-year-old girl stuck in a movie, not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of she was an insider in Hollywood. So for her to be doing all of these media campaigns telling you that I'm an outsider, also I'm an immigrant too, my great-great-grandfather immigrated from Norway, like this isn't about you. Like let the rest of this Asian cast, Asian-American cast have their moment. Like stop trying to shoehorn your way into this. It's not about you. So then for her to have won Best Supporting Actress instead of the uh, actress who played the lead, the daughter, okay, is ridiculous. I don't understand how people think that, like, listen, she, to be honest with you, of those, because I've seen all the movies, of those five that were nominated, Jamie Lee would have been, I don't, I don't mind that she got nominated. I think, yeah, I can see a nomination, but she was last on my list. I think for me personally, it was, my favorites was Angela Bassett and Stephanie Hsu Mm -hmm. were my favorites. I thought the uh, the 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 supporting actress in um, Banshee in, in, in the Sharon was great, and also mm-hmm. the sister. The, yeah, the sister and the Asian woman who played in the well. I thought she was fantastic. I mm-hmm. thought all of them, and it's because of the the meatiness of the roles. I thought Jamie Lee Curtis was you know a nice you know a little supporting addition to that movie. But yeah, like, she it was fun. Whatever, sausage fingers, whatever. Like. <laughs> But it was like literally a gimmicky little role. It was not like, I'm sorry, is or is not the Oscars an award for like excellence in your field, their field being acting. Yeah. And just off of that ending where you see where this Michelle Yeoh 
with the daughter and they're talking at the end mm-hmm. and her ability to when she was jumping back from this like really depressed and like sad you know uh woman to this you know archetype villain and just the craziness they had her do and the fact that she was able to sell it i i really thought they 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 lost the ball with the jamie lee curtis thing and i think they did it because you know she is you know hollywood royalty and everything like that and look like i understand the idea of like oh this person is at the end of their career they've been looked over for other awards so we're going to give them this oscar there are times when that happens like do i think that whoopi goldberg deserved the oscar for jumping jack flash no but she definitely deserved it for the color purple and sometimes it just bees like that jamie lee curtis what what is what is the role in which jamie lee curtis was robbed none she just has never been an actress like that. I look, I love Freaky Friday. Yeah. Okay, like, I love Jamie Lee Curtis, but not because she is, like, anybody's actress. Like, she's not, an, like, an artist in that way. She's great. Like, she's in good movies. She seems like a cool, broad, Activia. Like, fine. Now, here's my, my, my other thing, though. I also, like, as much as I adore Michelle Yeoh, and I actually do think that she has been underserved by Hollywood and does deserve to get her flowers. In this particular category, sometimes it's just a hard category. Yes. And I'm sorry, like, it just is what it is. Kate Blanchett is the best actress of our generation. And she broke her entire foot off in tar. That just is what it is. I would- and, it's hard for me to see how anybody but Kate Blanchett gets Best Actress. I'm sorry. I I understand that. For me, that was the hardest thing because I do really like Michelle Yeoh's performance in Everything Everywhere, but I do really like I, I like I do really like Kate Blanchett's performance in Tar. I'm about to block whoever just said Anna DeArmas because here here's what it I, is. I'm sorry, not blonde. No, no, no. Blonde. I watch every single movie. I watch every bad, terrible shit that Netflix tells me. Netflix puts it in front of me, and I say yes, ma'am. I, I Look, got like 45 minutes and I had to turn it off. I couldn't do it. I've started I've started Blonde like four separate times and it is both boring and offensive. Also, Anna DeArmas, look, this is not shade. I don't think people should have to be able to do I don't I, I'm not saying there's a hierarchy or value in an American accent, obviously. However, if you are playing a classic historical role of a person whose voice we all have heard because she was one of the biggest movie stars of all time. I need you to be able to do a clean American accent and not sound like you're from Spain. I'm sorry, I said it. Look, there are a lot of people in Hollywood. Look, what's your face for the Australian woman with the red hair, Nicole Kidman? Yes. I like Nicole Kidman, but after 30 years in Hollywood, she still has a weird twinge in her voice sometimes, and I don't understand it. You're being paid the big bucks to be able to act and I need you to be able to act and do a clean accent. If you're actually playing an American, now if you're just playing some random person, okay, fine. Like who cares if a little accent swoops through, it happens. But if you're playing someone who's a very specific character, you know, never catch Kate Blanchett slipping like that. No. Kate, Kate Blanchett, Kate Blanchett inhabited that role of Tar so well, so specifically in that first opening scene where she's doing that New Yorker interview that I literally Googled, oh, who is this Lydia Tar lady? I the same thing. I thought it was a real person. I thought it was a real person because it was so specific. She was a person who was not even real, but who was so clearly a specific human that was not Kate Blanchett that I believe she must have been doing an impersonation. Mm. That's acting. Okay. 
And Anna DeArm is mumbling around. I'm sorry. God bless. I'm sure she's a lovely woman and can play other kinds of roles. But she was nobody's, um, what's her name? What the, Norma Ray, whatever the no. fuck her name is. What's her name? Who? Uh, uh, oh. What's her name? Girl? Yeah, girl, what's her name? Jennifer Diamonds, all right, girl's best friend. What's her freaking name? Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe, I'm sorry. <laughs> She's nobody's Marilyn Monroe. And I haven't even gotten into the body type issues. I'm sorry. She does. Uh, the whole point of Marilyn Monroe was that she was extremely voluptuous and busty and hippie. And Anna de Armas is a beautiful woman, but she doesn't. I'm sorry. Everyone who was like, she looked just like Marilyn. I don't know what glasses you have on, but popping on some blonde lace front on somebody does not make them look like Marilyn Monroe. I'm sorry. I, and, and that's what that to me was um, one of the big issues that I had with that because first of all it was Anna Diarmis Di and um, I I didn't that was like the one movie I did not see because I just never even heard of it the the actress who got that everyone was shocked got nominated because no one saw the movie wait which um, movie there was this one movie for uh, best actress um, that got some controversy because no one heard of this movie. Was it women, not women talking, not, women not the talking. war one? It was the, in the Best Supporting Actress. So it was Anna Diarmas, um, Kate Blanchett, Michelle Yeoh, um, this other woman. And who was the other one that got nominated? Uh, what's her name? Our queen. Um, you know, uh, from uh, Black Panther. Uh, Angela Bassett. No, no, this is Best, best Actress. Oh, Best Actress. Okay, wait a minute. Let me Google that then. One best. actress in there that got nominated for this movie that no one ever heard of, but got nominated. It was like a grassroots push because she knew famous people who saw the movie and they pushed for people to, you know, nominate her. And um, it was like a big thing that the Oscars actually kind of did like a kind of covert look into to see if everything was copacetic with how that whole campaign went around. And um, because, there was a lot of, because a lot of people thought that, you know, even though I didn't, I'm not too mad at it because I knew they weren't going to win, particularly when you have Michelle Yeoh and Kate Blanchett. Oh, not Michelle Williams. Michelle Williams. Wait, wait, wait. Also, there's some person named Andrea Riseborough. Yes, Andrea Riseborough. That was the other one. Michelle Williams was the other one, but Andrea Riseborough. Well, you know how I felt about Michelle Williams' casting I, in The Fablemans. I thought them because. I wasn't too upset the fact that, you know, like, because I did believe Viola Davis should have been nominated and um, the woman from Till should have also been nominated in that. They weren't going to win because it was going to be Michelle Yeoh or Kate Blanchett. But those three performances, like, first of all, the Diarmas performance and Michelle Williams performance, I don't care what anyone says. Michelle, I don't, I don't like Michelle Williams. I've never really liked Michelle Williams. Performance. I don't get it. I mean, she seems like a nice lady. But I don't get it. I don't get it either. I think my issues with because she you know I believe she's she's been acting from a very long time and she's like I think she like dropped out of high school and then just went right into acting. And I think that's I think that's part of the issue. Like I don't think she has a lot of experiences outside of just being an actress. I, I mean, that, she did suffer the loss of her baby dad, you know, with Heath Ledger. I mean, I feel for her. Like, she's, you know, that's a terrible thing to have to experience. And like, I think she seems like a nice lady, but I find her to be so boring she was boring as uh as norma jean too yes <laughs> she i think she her i find her existence to be boring i find her face boring 
I find the words that come out of her mouth boring. She is the opposite of Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett is all cheekbones and one arched eyebrow and a little twitch of a twinkie f- pinky finger and, and just transatlantic accents and shoulder pads and I, I, I. And, and, and Michelle Williams is all, hi, let's go to Costco today. And like, I think the last thing I would say about the Oscars, one of the things that, because these are the most, um, this is kind of go back to the Oscar so white. And a lot of time that Oscar so white gets placed on the above the line um, awards. So your directors, your actors, your supporting actors, mm-hmm. everything like that, that no one ever looks at the below the line awards, your cinematographers, your editors, mm-hmm. everything. Because when you watch cinematographers, there has never been any person of color to win best cinematography. Mm. Didn't they're, Pan's they're Labyrinth? Be, I thought Pan's Labyrinth got a bunch of firsts for stuff for people of color. Okay, I'm going to say something that people are going to probably get a little mad at me, particularly if you're of the, you know, Hispanic or. Um, oh, oh, well, okay, buckle up. Anna de Armas, she won. Uh-huh. Isn't she from Spain? I'm sorry, I thought she no. was like literally from Spain. Isn't she sp- from Spain? She's Cuban, I believe. She's Cuban. Oh, my bad. I'm sorry, she white. Okay. Because I didn't know that. I thought she was from Spain. She's Cuban, Spanish. She's both. I'm like, when I look at some of them, I'm like, if I walk, if I walk outside and I look at you and it looked like you were like, like you come come from any European country, I'm sorry. I mean, obviously Latino isn't a race, so of course there's white Latinos. And um, so she she was born in Cuba. Her maternal grandparents migrated to Cuba from Spain, so fully European. Like, there's no Matizo in there, just fully 100% immigrated from Europe to Cuba. So, yes, white. Yeah, so that's, like, my one little controversial thing. But, like, I think the last time there was, like, a black person not, like, even nominated was Bradford Young, who was, like, my favorite uh, cinematographer for um, Arrival. Um, we just had a female nominated in Elvis. She didn't win. But if you look at a lot of these below the lines, like the visual effects, all of them constantly, it's just a lot of just white males. Mm-hmm. And no one ever really looks at that because no one ever talks about those categories. And I've, I've been trying to get more people like, you know, the, to understand the film industry and understand the fact that the film industry is very versed and very wide. And there's uh, like I've talked to a couple of like some of my friends are teachers. So I, used, I would go to like the public schools and talk to classes to tell them about all the different options out there. You have sound, you have editing, you have, you know, if you're more into finances, there UPMs. There's so many different, mm-hmm. areas, you know, that you don't necessarily have to be an actor. You don't necessarily have to be a director. There's a multitude of areas. Mm-hmm. Which well, that- we hope we get you. We hope you get one. Is there an <laughs> Oscar for lighting? Well, this, it would be cinematography. I would have to be a DP. Okay, Eric, we are rooting for you. Okay. <laughs> okay. When you when you are invited to the Oscars to get your reward, I hope you will consider. I don't know what's going on in your relationship life, or if you want to bring your you know mom or your cousin or your your sibling or whatever. But if no one else can make it, just know that I will be happy to accompany you. <laughs> <laughs> We're rooting for you, Eric. Okay, you have a good one. <laughs> you too. Keep the faith. Um, we'll take Lysol next, but also my other Anna de Armas hot take now that we fully established she's fully white and I won't get canceled for this is that she also should not have had an accent in, um, Knives Out because the whole point was a very significant plot point that she was a DACA recipient. Now, 
clearly it's possible to be a DACA recipient who lived long enough, you know, who came over still as a minor, but was old enough to like have learned, you know, got your accent from the, your country that you came from. That's clearly possible. But on the whole, in my experience, DACA recipients, the whole point is that you came over pretty freaking young and they don't have accents, like they have American accents. So that is like a small point, and I could, it's not, it's not a clear cut case the way the Marilyn Monroe argument is a clear cut case. But I thought it was one of many things that didn't quite pan out for me from a plot perspective in the original Knives Out. Okay. Hit me, Lysol. Oh, Lysol, where'd you go? App froze, gotta restart. Okay. Um, no worries. We're gonna go to Joel. What's on your mind, Joel? Uh, well, the the Rokana interview. I okay, maybe you maybe you agree. I thought there was this one sentence has been says I thought it said a lot. So he said, where, he's talking about the United States, where we have made mistakes in the past. I think we have owned up. I, I thought <laughs> it was telling. Okay, a couple things in it. So I, I'm gonna cite Chomsky a few times. I know I don't agree with him on everything, but on some of his past, you know, coups. Um, He's really, you know, he's one of the heavy, really greats, in my opinion, on just mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah, and uh, so he talks about, you know, biggest crime since World War II, you know, Vietnam War, 50, uh, I'm sorry, 2 million civilians dead. So th- this this thing where Rokana says mistakes, it, that, it, it, it hit on me, it, well, it resonated because Chomsky always points out, and historians always talk about, even still, sometimes, um, you know, this was a, a blunder or, you know, Mm-hmm. These wars, you know, the blunder, or tactically it was, or you know, even, and I just thought the statement was just, just so wrong. I mean, just, just false. I mean, owned up or made right. I mean, it, it, so if he's in good faith, if he says that in good faith, I have to say, I think the, the major difference between someone like Roe, in my opinion, and maybe somebody like, is easy person, easy person to go to would be like Kasama Suwan. I think mm-hmm. it'd be that. Rose got this belief kind of that we are a force more good than, you know, or the U.S. military could be a force for good. Still, it's such a, you know, it's almost a stretch for me to even imagine me mm-hmm. really saying this time the U.S. military has good intentions and they're, mm-hmm. and I just, I even find, I'll be honest, I find that maybe even Bernie, maybe even to my surprise, uh, Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Marion Williamson. This mm-hmm. belief that the U.S.—I don't know if this maybe you think maybe not on anything at all—but uh, I thought it was this kind of kind of American belief in America, belief in American exceptionalism is mm-hmm. like maybe a bit somewhat of an explainer. And you know, you're only going to get to their position. You know, they'll weed you out <laughs> if you, it's like a litmus test. You know, you got to believe. What are your thoughts? I don't know. No, yeah. I think you're entirely right. And you know, I. I appreciate Marianne undertaking this run. It takes a lot. And I think there's a net positive out of it. And on a personal level, I really love and respect Marianne, but I think that is a completely, that is, that is an assessment that I have also made that there is just a bit more of a belief in American goodness and good intentions um, than I personally bring to the table. And I think that is also true of Bernie. Although I do think there is more, skepticism um yeah that bernie has articulated in the past and his actions and you know doing his the south america work that he did central america work that he did in the 70s and 80s and stuff like that so like i i have a little bit i think that 
you know, it's not to the same extreme with Bernie, but even if he doesn't believe it in his heart, he still says things that affirm American exceptionalism. And you don't have to look any farther than his like co-signing of Joe Biden's approach in Ukraine and his unwillingness to opine. And I don't think Bernie's stupid. I don't think that Bernie doesn't know anything about the precipitating events um, that led to this conflict. He's been in Congress a very long time and he certainly was there in 2014. So I don't know what's going on there. Um, but I completely agree with your assessment that on some level when talking to Roe, it's almost like, it's almost like, like if it were Bernie, I might press more because I feel like he would understand more. But sometimes when I'm talking to Roe, I think maybe he really, really just sincerely believes this. Mm-hmm. And I don't even yeah. know what to do with that. Like, okay, like I'm not going to convince you otherwise in the next five minutes. So I guess I'll let this go. Yeah. But like, I remember the first time he came on after Ukraine and I was asking him about Ukraine. I think it was after he had that exchange with Max Blumenthal where he, you know, called him a Putin puppet. Mm-hmm. And then when I asked him about it on the podcast, he seemed to like genuinely not be aware of like what the Maidan coup was or like mm-hmm. what the Minsk Accords were. And like, and I, and I was like, when they, when you, when you don't know, it's like I don't even know where to take this conversation. Like, like really, you're in Congress and you're making these really bold claims about like journalists being in the p- pocket of Putin and you're voting on bills and funding and really you don't know. And that there's a different kind of disappointment, but it's, it's like, I don't know. It's like it's kind of stunning. Yeah, the last thing, oh, last thing I say is uh, through you, I actually found out about um, uh, Sachs. Wait, what's Sachs' name? Jeffrey Sachs. Yeah, his, okay, so he's, I don't know, seems like he goes around, he's kind of giving talks right now. He was in Turkey, I believe, and then he was in, his, the way he talks is so refreshing about internationalism, just generally. It almost seems like he's, he's been in this world so long, you know, he was like an advisor to Yeltsin or Gorbachev, mm. and he, he almost seems like he's not of a country, it's so refreshing. I mean, I've always thought, always thought, I just, you know, couldn't things be, couldn't we have internationalism with that isn't always just threats and sanctions? I mean, it's, it's never, it's never just like trying to, by and large, it seems like it's the stick. It's never the carrot. But the way he talks about, you know, that we call this now, you know, tr- used to be called trade, but now we're calling it, what do we call it? Um, they've labeled just trade with somebody. Uh, I forget the name. Anyway, I just thought, well, could take a hint from that. Like why? Why this? I mean, it makes me okay. Last thing, last actual last thing is it makes me worried. Like I want to like Marianne Williamson a lot, and she mm-hmm. has these books on this like on love, but oh god, I mean this internet. This I mean for me the biggest issue is imperialism. It is that for me yeah. among all other voting issues. And if you have yeah. that wrong, I'm like my god, how have you not seen that? Um, this ever escalating bases and. Poland's arming themselves. Poland is building an army. It, it's crazy. It's it's anyway. That, I'll leave it. That, no, I, look, I think you're right. The thing with Marianne that's a little bit um, that cuts both ways is that she talks very persuasively about how her father, who is a radical, um, her she tells a story about how she came home from school one day talking about how she had been told about how we we're going to go over there and like fight the Viet Cong and like restore freedom and democracy and like kill all these Vietnamese and did it. And her father was like, Oh, absolutely not. And like packed the whole family up and literally took them to Vietnam on vacation. Like that's how, that's how like down for the cause. I mean, obviously not everybody has the means to do that, but like that's how committed her father and her family was to what at the time was a very, a, a pretty progressive stance. 
and an, an acknowledgement of the harms of American imperialism, even at a time when that was a deeply polarizing take, take right? Yeah. My view of Marianne is not that it's necessarily like a commitment to American exceptionalism. I don't think that's it at all. But I do think it's a sometimes, and we've talked about this, that if she knows somebody in a space, let's say European leftists or, you know, if she if she has somebody like with the Afghanistan withdrawal, like if she knows humanitarians on the ground there who've been doing work with women's groups or whatever, it's not that she's wrong. Like those people were talking to her saying, hey, like we're being really made vulnerable by the sudden withdrawal. I think that's true. Like a lot of people got kind of screwed and with the withdrawal, it was messy yeah. and people got hurt and we saw the people falling off the planes and that was gruesome and horrible. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have withdrawn. Maybe we should have withdrawn differently. I don't know, you know, but like, but that sometimes her immediacy to some of these things um, will lead her to, in my humble opinion, miss the forest for the trees and say things that are unintentionally affirming a kind of imperialist narrative, like, oh, we got to stay because of the women and children. And I, and it's a little too credulous about, you know, what a given person is telling you the need is in a particular environment. So it's not like, oh, I just trust America, but it is, oh, I do trust the, the, the social worker I know in this space who's telling me that Ukrainians need our help or yeah, that I Afghan women need our help, you know? Very much agree. I, you know, I, as a go- I sometimes think, don't take, uh, people, okay, I believe that there are, there can be people with extreme expertise in this area. And, well, that's a trick. All I'll say is, I can't believe, on this, on these kind of realms, I think people shouldn't think for themselves. You could look, your Howard Zins, your Edward Saeed's, your, no, there's a lot of, I don't know, never, I, it's just like, um, I think people sometimes think, you know, like kind of like you got to look at the past. You got to look at the past. Okay, I'll leave it at that. I, I uh, it just makes me sad that there's not much of an anti-war anything on the horizon. The... Yeah, well, look. I'm not talking I, about this specific war. Just generally, that's like yeah. Just, yeah. Look, I'm hopeful. Marion said that she was like was gonna meet with like Aaron Mate, and I think that is like a great idea. And awesome. I'm so appreciative. Look, one of the things I really love about her is that she is one to talk to anybody. Look, she went into that RBN interview, and I got to say, if I had been her comps, you know, if I were working for her and doing comps for her, <laughs> given what they had been saying about her leading up to the interview, I would have told her that that was not worth your time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, on a, yeah. like your comms, as a comms person whose job is protect Marianne, I would have told her not to do it. As a journalist, I'm happy that she did it, you know. But, like, you know, and, and so on some level, I respect that she's willing to talk to everyone and you know we'll see what comes out of it yeah well thanks yeah i appreciate it yeah thanks for calling in joel all right right. is lysol back in the mix okay lysol what's on your mind tonight hey brie okay pasa what's on your mind um so to uh, to touch on marianne williamson briefly just because that's what we were talking about before Mm -hmm. um so i think I think this is just the latest example of somebody trying to split the difference between Bernie and Biden. And if we look at the history of that, it's like Elizabeth Warren was like running and polling well when she was like a gentler, less Bernie version of Bernie in the sense of like less rough edges, but like the same kind of policy beliefs and stuff. Cause like those first, first debates was basically them, the two of them back to back against like 
MSNBC and everybody else on the stage. But then as soon as she took that, as soon as she started wavering on Medicare for all, as soon as she took that $21 million donation from the VC lady, she was done. And I feel like the same thing's happening with the squad right now. And the same thing's like, there's a lane to be the radical leftist that the radical leftists want. And there's a lane to be Joe Biden. And maybe it'd be better Joe Biden, but there's nowhere in, the, there's nowhere in between. I guess my pushback against that is that I don't see Marianne as to between Bernie and Joe Biden. Marianne is basically the same as Bernie with respect to Ukraine. She is to the left of Bernie with respect to Assange. On all of those big policy points, she is the same as Bernie. She doesn't present as more establishment than Bernie in the way that um, Elizabeth Warren did because she's not a senator and she's not like using super polite, I, I love Joe Biden. Like, I mean, she says that kind of stuff all the time. I mean, sometimes, but like if you listen to her um, announcement speech, it's frankly more rhetorically edgy than even Bernie with respect to coming for Washington and like the drain the swamp language and talking specifically about corporate corruption. Like Bernie Bernie would never make the speech that Marianne made as her uh, announcement speech, whatever you want to say about it. Okay, so So I think it's a little more complicated than that. I don't think that I don't think in any way Marianne can be characterized as like splitting the difference in the way that Elizabeth Warren did. So I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase. Um, not we're not between Bernie and Biden because even we're because Bernie's now in the middle between Biden and whatever comes on the left or something actually comes from the left. I feel like the think of it in terms of markets like there is a market for a candidate who's not going to flinch, who's going to uh-huh. up and and stay stay true to their principles and not fold and not listen to the pressure and not become a Democrat at the end of the race. And I feel like there is a market for a younger, less white, less cis male Joe Biden. And if you can pull it off, I, you know, Mayor Pete has a benefit over Biden because Mayor Pete seems far more controllable, whereas Joe Biden, it's like, well, if you get him his pills on time, otherwise, who knows what he's going to say. And I just don't think, like, even Bernie couldn't run now in the middle. I don't feel like there's a middle ground. I feel like it's a deep chasm, an uncanny valley between the left and uh, Democrats. And I just, you know... Bernie would have to go far more extreme than he is right now, even to recover his base at this point, I feel. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I'd have to give that some thought. I think that mostly people want someone who seems, seems healthy and cogent and able to beat Trump. I think that's all it is. That's all the people want. Regretfully, that's about where the bar has been set. And so I think that, you know, Pete has a little egg on his face right now, but I think a lot of people would still be happy to see Pete run. I think a lot of people would be happy to see, frankly, a Rokana type run. I, I Like, not progressives, but I think there's a version of Rokana running where the same way that Pete is like a neolib but gay, and so that seems kind of progressive. Rokana is a neolib but brown, and that seems kind of progressive. Plus, he's got a little Bernie Bonafides in his back pocket, and he actually does quite well for himself. Again, not because of progressives, but because liberals see a technocrat who's a smart guy, who went to good schools, who says the right things, who's from a blue part of the country, and, you know, is younger and brown. So I think that's all the people want. That's all. Yeah. I don't think there's that many people in that camp anymore, though. No, I, I think there's because Biden who- just won the presidency. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, who who are we talking about? I think most Democrats 
I mean, we know why Biden won. The polls showed because people's biggest priority was beating Trump. So that's what people want. People want someone who is younger and healthier than Biden so they don't have to worry about him, but who can competently beat Trump. And because there are not a lot of people who have really demonstrated that ability because Democrats keep their bench really short and old and they don't let people and new people in. That's why so many people are willing to rally behind Biden for one more bite of the apple because there's no one really else who has demonstrated a, has demonstrated track uh, record of winning. I think people thought that Bernie could beat Trump and that's part of why he was able to be so popular. And I think that if Bernie ran again, then many people would also think he could beat Trump and he would have a good shot of it except for that the establishment, uh, you know, the DNC won't let him win. Yeah, and fair enough. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm overweighing leftist sentiment in this in terms of yeah, how many leftists don't matter. I'm, I'm not just going to be an asshole, but like leftists don't matter because leftists have said that they don't want to organize. They don't want to put forward their own candidate. Right. They don't want to support the one kind of left candidate that has put herself forward. So leftists don't matter. Leftists also have said they don't want to withhold their vote. There's a whole category of the left of like TYT, Majority Report, David Pakman left, who says I'm a horrible person for even hinting at withholding one's vote, who think that my debate with Chomsky about vote withholding shows that I'm a moron. And so the left doesn't matter. Following those people means that the left doesn't matter. So because left ain't going to do nothing but fall in line of over Biden. So here we are. Like, I don't know how many times. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know I sound a little cynical, but like I've been saying this now for over two years and it's a little. No, the left doesn't matter. So either put forward a candidate, you know, I, last summer, like you guys can say what you want about me. But last summer I had all the RBN people on my podcast to try to have an open conversation about who the left could run. I didn't bring up Marianne. But they became so fixated on the idea of Marianne that they spent the whole conversation arguing about her and not a single minute talking about who alternatives could be. All right. So now here we are eight months later or whatever, with no conversation being had about who could potentially run, whether or not they would be willing to, how much money we could fundraise for them, what that would look like. And that conversation is never going to happen. So here we are. So I, I think the, the counter argument arguments that and I'm not necessarily endorsing it is that there would be enough non-voters that you could actually mobilize an anti-establishment candidate, that there is enough fervor for that, even if it's not within the Democratic Party or people who have ever. Voted. Yeah, I think that's completely possible. I, I had conversations with Andrew Yang about it. I had taught I you know, I talked to people about like if we did run a candidate, should they run on the forward party or what other like we, I tried to have all these conversations. But like, t- tell me right now, Lysol. Who do you think would be your dream candidate? And you can't say Shama for two reasons. One, obviously, she wasn't born in America, so she can't do it. But two, like, if I were Shama, I would be almost uncomfortable with how much some of you guys are fetishizing her. Like, she's not the magic antidote to everybody's problem. She's phenomenal. She has amazing leadership abilities. Like, I'm so grateful for all that she's doing in the space. But, like, you cannot make your whole personality Shama Sawan. It's, like, getting really cringy and weird. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know me. Chris Smalls is my other person on the top of my list. Yeah. Okay. Well, then think seriously and talk seriously about what it would mean for Chris Smalls to run for president. What kind of infrastructure he would need. What kind of platform he'd be running on. Like, what, what kind of comms and media training would be beneficial to him. Like, what does that even look like? Is he even interested in that? 
I would love to be having that conversation. Do we know that he's even open-minded to that? No, like, I think that's great. So from a comms perspective, do you share my gripe about the phrase unserious? I find it to be incredibly pretentious and self-serving and just kind of makes the person talking sound arrogant. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't particularly, I don't have strong feelings about the phrase one way or the other. Okay. Cause I'm both a very serious and a very unserious person at the same time. And I feel like there, there should be room for both. <laughs> yeah. I don't, um, I don't have very strong feelings, but um, someone says Matthew Ho, adore Matthew Ho. Like right? Matthew Ho is, feels like plug and play. Like he's completely ready to go. His whole vibe is exactly what America wants for better or for worse. You know what I mean? I, mean, I don't and think that- it's fair, but it is what it is in terms of his aesthetics and all of that. Can you imagine him versus Pete in a debate? Two veterans, but it's like Matthew Ho. I, ooh, I love it. I'm obsessed with it. I think the Green Party should be talking about maybe a Matthew Ho style candidate because I, I want to know who I'm going to vote for <laughs> and the general election in 2024 in all likelihood. It's not going to be Joe Biden. So I would, I would love it if it were someone like Matthew Ho. Do Greens have the same kind of announcement season as Democrats and Republicans like February, March? I don't know. That's a good question. Cause yeah, I mean here, I mean here in San Francisco, here in California with the top two ballot thing, um, I didn't have an option for Green Party for uh, for governor when I voted in, uh, last year. Hmm. They just kind of like effectively killed, neutered the neutered the, the third party, which is interesting because in 2016, I voted for the, there was a, the Peace and Freedom Party and the Green Party did a unity ticket. And I was really into that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I reached out to someone in the Green Party to answer some questions about, um, what you can and cannot do with respect to like dirty break stuff. Cause I feel like some people say things, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the rules that I think are leading people to come to some conclusions that are baseless. So for example, I've seen people say like, Marianne's a sellout cause she's using act blue. It's like, okay, well, if you think the value of Marianne is partly in large part, just being on the debate stage, if she doesn't follow some of these DNC rules, like using act blue to fundraise, then she's not allowed to be on the debate stage. So like at one point, at what point are you just asking someone to completely neuter their campaign in a way that makes it so they might as well not run at all? You know, like some stuff, stuff is just the rules, you know, so saying there's not going to be any debates anyway. And I haven't, I haven't followed up enough about that to know how true that is. Yeah. I no nobody knows So people want to say things like that to minimize Marianne's campaign. What you should be arguing is there should be debates, right? And the fact of Marianne running enables you to make that argument. If Marianne weren't running, then they can say there's no debates and it's obvious why there's no debates. Again, just another example of why it's good to have somebody, anybody run, in my humble opinion. You don't have to feel that way and you can obviously very gladly not vote in the Democratic primary. And then uh, we can all enjoy Joe Biden in the general election. Well, you you (laughs) share. Heard that Rebecca Parson uh, a tweet about you know to people who had run outside the system a series of questions for you and I was curious to see if any of the people who are you know because some of the people who I would want to hear those answers from are the people who are recommending her when we were talking about third party candidates and it's basically just kind of like how do you throw the soup and I'm like how I'm do you what the soup outside th- outside soup throwing strategies but you know. Mm. A little horse race for your own benefit, you know. I don't agree it's a net negative. I think it's at worst a, a wash. I don't think the Democratic Party gets any more or less credibility because Marianne Williamson was in the debate. Okay. Well, then that's fine. Don't vote for her. Yeah, no, not fine. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. 
Ah, that's all I got. Cool beans. Thanks, Lisa. You too. Keep the faith. Russell, what's on your mind? Russell, can you unmute yourself? Bree. Russell. You spliced in to one of your shows, I forget which one, uh, Bernie going after, uh, or somebody, some senator going after the CEO of Norfolk Southern about whether they would pay for the, the health bills of the people in East Palestine. Mm-hmm. And it made me think back to 2009 when Max Baucus, the senator from Montana, was writing uh, the Romney Care, Obamacare bill with Liz Fowler, the former insurance industry lobbyist. And we were all involved with that because they wouldn't let any single payer people testify. Uh, they just didn't want to talk about single payer and we disrupted the hearing. Something it, under today's rules, we'd, we'd be in jail for a long time. And, uh, but what Bacchus did so he passed this Romney care kind of Obamacare um, instead of even hearing us out on Medicare for all. But one of the things he did was, and I think you know about this because I've heard you mention it, he put in a provision into Obamacare that gave Medicare for all to everybody in this town in Montana, Libby, Montana, that was mm-hmm. polluted by a, a W.R. Grace vermiculite mine that contaminated the town with asbestos and everybody got really sick. Mm-hmm. And Social Security Administration, after this law passed, actually set up an office there and everybody who ever lived in Libby and surrounding areas that were polluted got Medicare. So one of the things that the Democrats and Republicans could come together on and do is give Medicare to all the people in that town that were affected by this train derailment, just, you know, put aside mm-hmm. their differences. And it seems like the Republicans are interested in embarrassing the Democrats on this. So put aside their differences and say, okay, we've got this idea of Medicare for all. Let's give it to these people at least. And it would, it would create a nice little model that people could see how it worked. And you don't have to be 65. It's just anybody affected gets it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been talking about this. Crystal's been talking about this. No one's going to do it. So here we are. But why do you, why do you think that is? Why, I mean, it seems like they're both interested in doing the show and tell thing about helping the people there. But why do you think the Democrats wouldn't do that? Um, because they're bad people. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I, that would have been an interesting question for Rokana, but I think we could all kind of script his answer. He says, I mean, like, oh, I don't know about that, but I'll have to look into it. You know? Well, the other thing. You know, the, the, want... the more interesting question is perhaps why isn't Bernie calling for that? That too. And the other, the other thing is I heard uh, Barbara Lee on Democracy Now! today. And uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the Senate race, but also it's interesting that they did not ask her. I mean, she was the one person, I think, who from the beginning voted against military mm-hmm. action after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I'm, but now she's folded into 
yeah, send them $100 billion. Let's go kill some people. And they did not ask her about that. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering your thoughts on on that race and, and her candidacy. Um, I don't know much about it as of yet. Um, you know, I probably would have said Katie Porter. You know, I, I think I have I have most respect for Barbara Lee not voting for the authorization use of military force. Um, but, you know, there's only so long that you can kind of rest on that courageous moment from 20 years ago, you know. And I would have said Katie Porter seems like the most progressive person in the race so far. But, you know, she just got back from her Israel trip talking about how Benjamin Yahoo is making some really good points. So who knows, you know, who's who would be the best? I don't know. I'm inclined to still probably say Katie Porter just because she has been able to use having a national platform to really bring a spotlight to some pretty significant you know, democratic socialists, kind of moderate social safety net policies that are the norm in every other developed country in the world. Um, and I guess in the world of incrementalism that we live in, that's better than nothing. And she seems the most competent at advancing those ends. Barbara Lee has been around for a very long time. And apart from that AUMF vote, I don't really know what her legislative record is or her record of bringing attention to issues is. And Katie Porter does seem to have been a demonstrated fighter um, and who also is younger and maybe has some longer legs in terms of national politics in the future, which might be interesting. Again, she's not the hero that I would pick, but I am of the view that having more at least left-leaning people in these kind of national contests is a net benefit. So again, Marianne's not perfect. Kay Porter's even farther from perfect in my view and on and on and on. But if I had to pick a Democratic primary race in 2024, that's like Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and Biden – versus Ro Khanna, um, Marianne, and Katie Porter. Like, I would prefer it to be the latter. So I guess I would say I would still be rooting for her, but it's hard to root for her given, you know, this latest mm -hmm. news cycle about uh, her, her Israel trip. So I don't know. What do you think? Well, uh, I'm, I'm just no on the Democrats, totally. So I... Yeah. I, I would, do you live in California? I don't. I, I'm in West Virginia, but mm. <laughs> it's sort of the opposite. But um, yeah, I just uh, it's it's really very difficult. But um, I'm a big fan of Medicare for all. I think Bernie just has totally put it to the side. He said he's not going to hold hearings on it, even though he's head of the help committee. Um, and he could easily hold hearings on it to bring attention to the needs of the American people. So I just, I can't say that I'm despondent, but I just, I I, th I think the Democrat, we have to move, somehow try and move beyond the Democratic Party and build something, something outside of it that's new. And um, I don't, I just don't know exactly how that's going to happen or where it's going to come from, but I'm hoping that it does. I agree. I agree. It's just, I don't know, like, it's it's pretty disappointing that eight years after 2016 and four years after 2020, like, seeing how all the mistakes that were made in 2016 in terms of shutting down the Bernie org, seeing that kind of repeated in 2020, being in the middle of the pandemic, having no left consolidation, no sense of community in, like, 
left political sphere building towards something. Anytime people wanted to talk about a general strike, anyone, anytime anybody wanted to talk about a candidate, anybody, anytime anybody wanted to talk about break for the Green Party and supporting Green Party candidates, the establishment left, shot down those ideas. Uh, DSA, you know, there's a lot of good people in DSA, but has not shown any real leadership here. The electeds, many of whom are members of DSA, have shown no leadership here about how to build a movement. In fact, they've been working overtime to reaffirm their commitment to the Democratic Party, cheerleading people like Hakeem Jeffries. And, you know, what's frustrating is that it feels like we were in a moment where a lot of things could happen um, that would set us up better to having more power in this moment and more direction and focus. And that's exactly why Force the Vote, I'm sorry, continues to be such a disappointment because it was emblematic of both the energy that exists to do something different and also the energy that exists within the left itself to shitting on anything that even has the possibility of changing the patterns that we've been locked into for so many years. Yeah, well, um, you know, one of the trouble I get into with Democrats, the dwindling number of Democrats in West Virginia, is to talk about uh, the war yeah. uh, because they're, they've now become a war party and I, I went to the, um, I went to the anti-war march, mm-hmm. uh, on the National Mall and I talked to maybe, I actually interviewed maybe 20 just regular people who showed up. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, if you put aside all the atmospherics and the commotion that was surrounding it, there was just regular people right, left and center who said, we just have to stop this. There was one guy, in particular, he he made signs that uh, read "negotiate," and it was spelled N E G O S H E A T E. And I said, "What's that about?" He said, "Our leaders are like children; you have to spell it out <laughs> as if it sounds." And he said, "You know, get a hotel in Costa Rica and stick these two people in there." And each of them comes up, you know, that's what negotiation is about. You have face to face and stop the killing. So uniformly, it was really interesting. There were people, there was like one guy, and I saw the Rachel Maddow thing afterwards mm-hmm. where she says, oh, there's a bunch of Russian flags and Proud Boys and Charlottesville people. I've, you know, and there were, there were the one guy, the most prominent guy with the Russian flag had like a red face mask on. So you couldn't see his face with a, hammer and sickle across his mouth, and Maddow played this piece. Um, so I don't know where these people are from, and I'm sure there are Russian supporters there, but for the most part, it was it was pretty amazing. Left, right, unite against the war. I thought it was very yeah. positive. I thought it was very positive. Yeah, I, I'm sure that it was. I, I'm sure that it was, and I think that Rachel's, uh, Rachel Maddow's hit piece was, piece was ridiculous. Yeah. Um. That's one of my disappointments with why with Marianne's um, foreign policy perspective is partly because not only do I think it's the right thing to do to be more strongly taking an anti-war position, I just think it's politically expedient. You know, like, of course, I'm not asking her to do something just because it's politically expedient. It is the right thing to do. But like, hello, it's like such a winner right now. And you could get so much. So you'd have so much appeal across the aisle if you could really carve a lane out for yourself. Um, so what is that about? Like, like knowing that one, she's not going to win and two, she's there to come at it from the left. Why would she take that position? It doesn't make any sense to me. 
Well, for one, I don't, and she's not framing her candidacy as a vanity candidacy. She is, she is running with the intention of winning. So from her perspective, it's not just a messaging campaign. It's a, you can think of one about her, her odds, but she perceives it as a, as a campaign to win. But moreover, um, she just doesn't, she disagrees. Like she disagrees. She thinks that, you know, we have a, we have a difference of opinion. And she, you know, she believes that we have an obligation to help protect the people of Ukraine from an invasion by a foreign country that's in violation of um, uh, international law, and that certain concessions to Putin. I, I mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth. I'm sure she's given interviews about this, and you can hear what she has to say in her own words. I don't want to mischaracterize her, but we just have a difference of opinion about where the onus lies and what we would emphasize. Like the thing, the, the frustrating part is she agrees with a lot of the the statements. Like she agrees with the um, the provocations of the dangling the carrot to join NATO and America's involvement in the coup and like there, there, you know, and the need to have negotiations and the need to be focused on people. Like there's a lot of like bigger picture statements she absolutely would agree with. And I personally would encourage her to like say more often and make that clear. But I also think that she fundamentally doesn't have the same opposition to the, the aid that's been given to Ukraine because she thinks that, Basically, until some negotiation has been come to, come to like that, we we have this fundamental obligation to protect um, the interests of the Ukrainian people, and even at great kind of like cost, you know. And that I mean, that is what it is. I mean, we disagree. Yeah, a great cost to the Ukrainian people. Um, so, uh, well. Thank you, Bree, for uh, keeping these lines open because obviously you have a, a big following and out of the big following, hopefully something will come of it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I Maybe it's t- maybe I need to have maybe an offline conversation with um, Shama, maybe some, some others uh, about what can be done. Because I see people saying like, well, Brianna, like, obviously the Democratic Party is dead. Why are you still trying to work with anybody? I'm not trying to do shit. I'm not running for president. And I think that you guys, like, I don't know how many times to say this. I'm really kind of honestly exhausted of having to repeat myself. So, like, everyone listen up. Like, like, put your ear to the phone. Like, listen real closely. If you want to completely not use this election in any way, if you think there's no opportunities to be gained by the fact of the election happening, God bless, check out. I'm not mad at you. Go play video games or do mutual aid or, you know, whatever your worthwhile project, learn how to paint, go to therapy, spend time with your children. There are a lot of wonderful things you can be doing with your time, and I completely respect that. Like, this is not passive aggressive. I, I literally think that that's perfectly legitimate. However, it seems to me that no matter what happens in the world, there are opportunities to exploit it for your own purposes. And there are a lot of bad things that happen in the world that I think you can exploit for your own political purposes, take advantage of. That's the whole point of the shock doctrine, right? People figured out that when shit goes down, an earthquake, a tragedy, 9-11, that they can use that to advance their own interests. Oh, okay, let's ratchet up the powers of the security state. Oh, okay. Let's you know. Let's let's figure out how to work this to our advantage. And conservatives are doing that 100% of the time. Neoliberals are doing that 100% of the time. And all I'm saying is that, with or without our paying attention to it, 
there will be a primary election. There will be a general election. Those things are happening with or without us. And if you think there's absolutely nothing, there's no way the left can figure out how to get any benefit for itself using those very high profile events that are going to define politics for the next two years, then sit it out. I get it. Like sit it out. But you don't have to play. You don't have to play video games. You can actually sure. engage, engage it. Like one of the things I I learned from this anti-war rally was there are a lot of young people there, and there were there's a group that came down from Philadelphia. They have some kind of study club that studies uh, Du Bois and Martin Luther King, and they were about twenty of them, and there was young people from New York City who came down who were wearing t-shirts quoting General Smedley Butler against the war and they started a group called Necessary Dissent. So out of all that activity, and I think the the that was just like the first pulse of the anti-war movement in the United States, and it will continue to grow. But out of all that activity will come new groups of leaders who will engage in political activity and and yeah, that's the, ball the thing. Forward. Like Nick says this all the time. Ironically, Nick talks all the time, or he used to at least, about how much volunteering for the Bernie 2016 campaign and knocking doors radicalized him and helped make him the man that he is today. You know, like, so I don't know. I don't know how you can see. And I obviously feel the same way about how going through that crucible helped to shape me and form my politics and teach me about the world and radicalize me. So, you know, maybe you think there's a, it's a net negative because of other things that have happened, but the positive benefits of these campaign cycles are very obvious to me. Yes. And so from my perspective, I'm going to try to exploit this thing that's happening with or without me. I, I didn't, I didn't choose, I didn't write the constitution. I didn't select the electoral cycle. I didn't make it a four year term. I didn't do any of that. That's not my fault. Don't put that on me. But these things are happening. Like, I didn't do it. Like, you guys are acting like I recruited Marianne. Like, she chose to run. Like, th these things are happening with or without us. Like, I couldn't tell her to stop. I couldn't tell her to go. Like, I have no control over the situation. <laughs> I don't work for her. Like, I don't know what to tell you guys. Like, if someone else jumps in, I honestly think that would be great. So, But this is what this is what the state of play is right now. And for people who are accusing me of promoting her, sorry, like, that's just incredibly stupid. Like, I have a political show. I talk about what's happening in politics. And we could talk about Marianne a lot less if if every two calls someone didn't call in to say how much they hated her. Like, I almost, like, wouldn't even bring her up. She hasn't even really done anything yet. Nothing's happened. There's no reason to talk about her except for that people, people, there's, like, a whole, like, thing in the left media ecosystem right now where you get a lot of clicks from talking about how much you hate Marianne. So, God bless. If you want to talk about her, then we'll talk about her. <laughs> But like right now, nothing's happened. So we're only well, talking about her because y'all are bringing it up. I didn't bring it up, but you made a good case against her. So I won't support her. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Bree. All right. Keep the faith. Bye-bye. Um, I really should stop, but I feel like I've like next, like come close to calling on a not called on Jonathan a bunch of times. So Jonathan, if you can keep it relatively short, because I haven't closed my rings today, you'll be our, uh, our last caller. You with us, Jonathan? Can you unmute yourself? I platformed Marianne. I platformed Marianne. Oh, goodness gracious. Okay. When's the last time you even had her on the podcast? 
RBN's platformed her a lot more than me, it seems. <laughs> um, Jonathan, are you with us, or should we just wrap this? And I can eat the sweet green salad that's been sitting out in my hallway for the last hour and a half. All right. Okay. Well, I guess that's it for us today, then. I will see you guys on the flip side on Thursday. Take care of yourselves and uh, keep the faith. Wish I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot on podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler us and travel with portable speakers and bother us scams. Wish I had a million pounds. I wish I had a million problems. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all a million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them shit like Beaver Man. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are spending all my hands. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish to help us like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we drive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we drive in, it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better riding skill. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew on a lime beam. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything. I laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kinda understand it. <laughs> wish that I could.